This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. We'll get to the football, we'll get to the coaches, we'll get to the teams, we'll get to the matchups. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to that stuff. But before we can get to any of that, we've got to talk about the glaring issue inside stadiums and outside stadiums. It's you. Not you specifically, but fans and fan behavior. Big story today uh, coming out of the weekend. Sunday night's uh, New England Patriots game in Foxborough has become the subject of an investigation. There was an incident in the 300 tier of Gillette Stadium that prompted Foxborough police and firefighters to respond during the fourth quarter of the Patriots' loss to the Dolphins. 53-year-old Dale Mooney was in need of medical attention. He was rushed to a nearby hospital, and he was pronounced dead before midnight. Now, investigators are investigating the death. His wife was quoted in multiple news reports as saying that her husband, uh, lifelong Patriots fan, season ticket holder for 30 years, like the most valuable fan in the stadium to the New England Patriots, uh, her husband apparently was involved in a verbal confrontation that turned physical. Does that surprise you? At an NFL stadium, doesn't surprise me a bit. Witnesses uh, uh, witnesses have uh, surfaced, and videos have come out, and uh, apparently uh, nobody has been charged yet in relation to his death. There is an autopsy that is expected to uh, be completed uh, last night, and the release are not the the results of that have not been released. But the Patriots also have not released a statement addressing the incident, nor has the NFL. Now, I find this interesting and disappointing on a number of levels. Nobody who goes to an NFL stadium who gets in a verbal confrontation should have that escalate to a physical confrontation, should have that escalate to, oh, they're starting a sports radio show in in the Pacific Northwest by talking about fan behavior and the disappointing actions of people inside stadiums and i'm not here to point a finger i didn't see any of the videos i don't know what happened with this incident but i got to be honest with you i'm uh, i'm increasingly troubled with the behavior that we see inside of stadiums nfl stadiums major league baseball stadiums in some respects some nba arenas not as bad though and i don't know why it's not as bad in those stadiums maybe it's not three or four hours of tailgating and alcohol that runs up to a weekly event. Maybe it's just a different crowd and a different vibe at an NBA arena. I don't know. Maybe you can help me there. But I have found that as I go around college football, that there are some stadiums and some scenes that I see that make me uncomfortable. 
And I'll tell you, like, you know, my kids and my wife, they want to go to games. They see me going to games. They always look at the schedule and they say, okay, where are you going this season? Okay, you're going to Salt Lake City. You're going to Boulder. You're going to the Bay Area. You're going to cover this game or that game or a bowl game or whatnot. And they will uh, they will occasionally point at a game on the schedule and say, hey, how about that game? And there are times when I go, ah, that might not be the best game for a family to attend. And I got to be honest, like as much as my kids want to go like to an NFL game, it's not just the cost that becomes prohibitive for me. It is the scene that I see on social media. It's people punching each other. It's people drunk on their feet. I saw a video in the last 24 hours. I saw one video where a fan was uh, in an altercation. One fan was holding his arms. Other fan starts punching the guy, knocks him out cold. I saw another video where security uh, had to be brought in because a fan had vomited all over uh, the seats in the area that he was sitting, so he got escorted out. I saw another video where fans were fighting on the concourse, and it was like two-on-two fighting. It looked like a cage match from the WWE, and I don't say that to make light of it. I say it because it's really kind of disappointing and weak when you think about it. I don't know who these people are who are throwing punches at stadiums. I don't know who these people are who are throwing verbal jabs that escalate to punches. I don't know who these people are who are drinking so much that they can't handle themselves inside an NFL stadium or a college football stadium. Maybe you've had an experience you would like to share with me on that front. What are you thinking about? What popped into your mind? How can we solve this? If you're an NFL stadium or a college football stadium, on one hand, you want to sell beer, you want to sell alcohol, you want to sell wine, you want uh, fans to be able to tailgate, and you want them to pay premium ticket pricing and sit in premium seats and come hang out in the parking lot where they're paying $75 a game for a parking space. But on the other hand, you have to, if you're going to do that, monitor the stadium in an appropriate way. And there have been scenes at both Oregon and Oregon State that I've seen in the last couple years where I went, gosh, I'm glad my kids aren't with me. Not because I don't love my kids, but because I go, this would not be the kind of place where I, I would want them to see what's going on. I saw fans at an Oregon State game last season that were stumbling around drunk on their feet, like barely standing. I've seen fans at an Oregon game who are throwing things, who are in the parking lot acting like idiots. I've seen all of this, and, and, and the common denominator is often alcohol. But the other thing that the other factor that plays a major role, I think, is the lack of staffing at the stadiums, the lack of security, the lack of oversight, because I think sometimes just having a security person visible and in the area uh, tends to uh, de-escalate situations or make them not happen at all. But I want to hear from you at 503-417-7575. We've got a case now where a fan in an NFL stadium has died. It's unclear what occurred. The Norfolk District Attorney's Office is investigating. 53-year-old is dead. He was apparently in need of medical attention. Did he get punched and hit his head? Did he get punched and get killed? Did Was he the offender? Was someone else the aggressor? We don't know yet. But I think it's a really disappointing situation, and I'm not surprised by it because I have seen these videos every year. They circulate already. We're just a couple of weeks into the NFL state season, and I've seen a couple of these videos. I want your thoughts on this at 503-417-7575. What do you make of it? How do you stop it? And what have you seen inside stadiums where you've gone? 
Have you had moments where your family or your young children are with you and you go, hey, let's get out of here. This isn't a safe place to be. Or would you even bring kids to a stadium? Because I'll be honest with you. Like, I walked around Racer Stadium last Saturday exploring their new west side, and I was really impressed with two things. One, stadium itself is put together nicely. Second thing, I saw a ton of real law enforcement walking the concourse. And I'll be honest with you, as much as alcohol gets served at a college football game, I think you need to have those those off-duty or on-duty uh, security personnel who are not just, like, wearing a bright jacket, but, you know, carrying a badge and carrying a gun and presenting a uh, show of force by being on the concourse. And I and I walked by a couple of police officers, and I was like, hey, thanks for what you do. Like, it's a thankless job. They're at a college football game. I'm sure they're making overtime. But they're also there helping keep that place safe. I want to hear from you. Let's weigh in at 503-417-7575. Jake is in northeast Portland. He's going to lead us off. Jake, what's up? Hey, John, what's up? Hey, I, I don't think this is a sports problem. This is a society problem. It's happening everywhere. Hospitals are having to increase their security presence. All these videos of people just behaving like toddlers on airplanes. It's a problem everywhere. I agree that alcohol is probably one of the main um, matches, but the the accelerant right now is this hyper-politicized environment. Everyone is so angry all the time. It's it's happening everywhere. I work in healthcare at the hospital I'm at. We're, we've had to increase our security presence by, like, a lot. You know, recently a security guard was shot at Good Sam Hospital. Wow. Um, it's just, it's everywhere. It's like every every industry, you know, talk to servers um, in the service industry. Like, customers are angrier than ever. It's like, I don't know what the, the answer is, but, like, it's bigger than sports. And I'll take your comments off the air. Yeah, I think there's a loss of civility that you're talking about in general that really I think we can go back maybe about seven years when, we had political elections that were coming up, and all of a sudden we saw the sides not talking in a civil manner anymore. And I think that was modeled in a way that, uh, you know, became part of society. I also think it's evident, color's right, it's not just limited to stadiums. I mean, look at social media in general. Uh, maybe that's a contributing factor. You see people on planes who are getting kicked off um, and uh, not going peacefully. Uh, 503. 417-7575 is the number. Sean is in Sandy. Sean, what do you make of it? Well, I can hear what that guy says. He's talking about, you know, our aggro society, and we do have people with thin skin. But I go to ball games all the time. This has been going on for a long time. I think there's just a lot more cameras and stuff going on. And it's just different cities. You got aggro fans. And, uh, you know, I go to see Mariner games. I'm a Dodgers fan. Uh, I know you like Dodgers fans, John. So uh, I would love to see a Dodgers game this weekend. It was real great to see him sweep the Mariners. And, uh, you know, we don't have no problems. You know, it's, it's, Seattle is just a great town. It's just you go up there to have a good time. We don't have no problems. It's not like going to Boston or Philadelphia or, or some of these more aggro cities where people are more aggro fans. And, and just, you know, we're all there to have a good time. I hope so. I mean, that I have gone to Seahawks games where I've seen things in the parking lot that were troubling. Uh, I don't think Seattle as a city is immune to that. I don't think anybody would who has been to downtown Seattle in the recent months would 
would walk away going, oh, that's a nice, safe, gentle place. Do you think it has to do with the fact that everyone has a camera in their pocket now and it's just more accessible to record that kind of stuff where, you know, back in the 90s or even the 2000s, we didn't have that type of technology and that stuff was going on then also, but we're just seeing it now because more people have access to record it. It could be. Like, that's probably a contributing factor that it's more visible to us. But I don't remember as a kid, Stephen, I went to Candlestick Park a lot, and I don't remember ever seeing a fight at Candlestick Park. And and yet, these NFL games, we've got people who are getting punched out, people who are getting put into comas, people are, get, are just fighting and getting ejected and getting banned, and now you've got a fan in uh, this Patriots-Dolphins game who's dead. And that, you know, that... That troubles me. I don't remember that happening. Do you? No, I, I I don't. It was more that was more just you know play devil's advocate there because you know I think it does happen more often and and just like the callers like I don't know the exact reason why it's happening but it does seem to happen and it, but it also seems to be happening more in football rather than baseball or basketball or even like a sport like hockey where they actually fight in the games like I wonder if it's just because. You know, football is the once a week game. It just seems like there's more time to tailgate. Happens on a weekend. Happens on the weekend. All the tailgating yeah. stuff. It, it seems like it might be a little different. But um, like when I go to basketball games, I don't really see fights in the crowd. But you see them all in the football games when you look on the internet. Let's go to Josh, who's in Vancouver. Josh, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. Uh, so hey, I do think uh, I have to agree that cell phones play a negative um, part in this, and I think the reason for that is specific, though. I think that people have have started reaching for their cell phone to record where 10, 15, maybe not even 10, but 15, 20 years ago, those same people that would have reached in their pocket to that record now, those people would have literally got involved and been like, you know, hey, people break it up or, you know, go, go just get back to yourself, ignore each other, whatever. So, like, they still would have involved themselves. It's just different today in how they choose to involve themselves. So I do think the fact that we live in a society where everything is, um, you know, everybody's trying to be insta-famous and, you know, they want to have the video that's going to go viral and all that plays a factor. The other thing I was going to say too, John, is, is, you know, it's really unfortunate. I agree with you that, you know, to make an environment safe for a family. So, you know, I've got, you know, my wife and I have three kids. Um, in order to make the environment safe for me to feel like it would be worth my money to take my wife and kids to a game, Having more of a security presence, having more of a police presence would be fantastic. Yep. With the exception that adding all of that just increases the freaking cost of going and seeing <laughs> a game that is already insane and people can't afford, and they're pricing out your regular fan, and it's pretty soon just going to be events. Even regular season games at any sport you want to go to will just be events for the celebrity mucky mucks to go and get trashed and be cool on the sidelines while the rest of us enjoy it from home. Have a good day, bud. See ya. Yeah, I appreciate you. And I think you're right. I think families have been priced out largely. Uh, college and pro sporting events, certainly the NBA, I look at the price of tickets and I go, okay, who can afford this unless you're writing this off as a business who is affording uh, these tickets? So let's go to Jerry in Happy Valley. Jerry, bring some levity to the conversation. Okay, I agree with a lot of the sentiment here that I've heard. Uh, number one, it is a societal thing. Uh, but like you, I've been to Candlestick, you know, it's been many, many years. I've been to the Oakland Coliseum quite a few times. Talk about a place that could be ugly. But, uh, and yes, I know we have phones and everybody's snapping this and doing selfies and all that. 
But it's definitely deeper than that as far as where we're at with the society, this sort of a tribalism thing that we have, but where it's been kind of okay to be a jerk over the last few years. Somehow I don't quite understand all the reasoning behind it, but I know that you can just, it's palpable in different places that you go, uh, and especially in that kind of, uh, you know, charged-up arena. I'm sure you know that when they would have, like, these buses that leave from downtown San Francisco bars to go to, and people would be already just looped up yeah. going to Candlestick. So alcohol is, is an accelerant, yes, but the lack of civility uh, with that same accelerant in today's world is, uh, you know, is, is uh, scary. I mean, yeah, it's just a, I think it's, you're hitting on it. Like there's a three headed, uh, there's a three pronged issue here, you know, and I think it's why it's such a good topic to talk about because I think all of us, I don't hear anybody calling in saying, yes, I go to NFL stadiums or I go to college football stadiums to see fights between fans. I don't hear anybody saying that. But I think you have alcohol clearly as a contributing factor. There's a lot of emphasis on the sales of alcohol, the consumption of alcohol in the tailgate. I'm cool with people having drinks and having a good time. I'm not cool when people can't handle their alcohol or let it affect others in a way that is particularly, in this case, unsafe. Not good. So if you're going to sell alcohol at the stadium or you're going to have an extended tailgate, you better have security in the stadium or alcohol monitoring in the stadium or you better have a presence out in the parking lot but what is it about football that brings this out more i feel like than baseball or basketball like baseball you know I, again i don't know if it's more family oriented or whatever or same with basketball. i think it's a tailgate i i, I think it's that tailgate i think it's the fact that you know look um 12 30 kickoff at Autzen stadium you're gonna have people in that parking lot at 8 30 in the morning Making breakfast, drinking mimosas, that's fine. But you turn that into a 4 o'clock kickoff on the Palouse, and you suddenly have Washington State and Oregon State fans who are going to that game who have been five, six hours of pre-partying before walking through the stadium gates. Like, you could you know, potentially have a problem. That's why I say it's a three-headed monster, because it's alcohol, sure. It's a loss of civility in our society and a little bit of violence, absolutely. Uh, and then... Uh, the third issue that I think is a contributing factor is I think that that the cost of labor and the cost of security has risen, and I think you got some entities here that are going, "Hey, this is an acceptable byproduct. We're going to have people who can't handle their alcohol. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, we're not going to be able to staff this appropriately." Because I just don't remember, Stephen. I don't remember it happening. I don't remember going and being in Candlestick Park any time of my childhood and seeing a fight. I, you know, I, I, I left the seats at 10, 11, 12 years old and ran to the restroom by myself. There's no way in today's world I'm letting my nine-year-old go to the bathroom by herself. And I'm walking her right to the door and I'm standing right outside. Yeah, 100%. And even at a, you know, a basketball game and a Blazer game, I, I wouldn't let my kids go just by themselves, especially at a football game. Because I went to a few football games when I was younger, when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, you're right. I don't remember any type of fights. And I even remember, you know, after the games... Uh, after the Seahawks losing, like the opposing fans just yelling and screaming, like, yeah, you know, we beat the Seahawks, the Seahawks suck, but no one said anything about it. Like, there was no challenging of it. Where I feel like now, if that happened, that's just disaster waiting to happen. We're going to talk coming up about USC football and a decision that Lincoln Riley has made that is way out in left field. Kind of. We'll talk about it 
That and more still ahead. USC coach Lincoln Riley's uh, got a football game this weekend. They're flying a little bit under the radar, the Trojans are, as uh, Oregon and Colorado on center stage uh, for their game at 1230 on Saturday at Autzen Stadium. And you also have, obviously, um, Utah and USC playing a 1230 game. And then your 4 o'clock game, you got Oregon State and Washington State, two ranked teams, and at 7.30 on Fox, it's USC at Arizona State, a game that not many people are talking about. But some people are talking about USC football today because of something Lincoln Riley did. The Southern California News Group, which is comprised of the Orange County Register and some other papers, has been suspended for, with access to the team for two weeks. Luca Evans is the beat reporter for USC football for the Orange County Register, and USC apparently not happy with Luca. Lincoln Riley took issue with a story that was published last week. In the story, uh, Luca Evans wrote about a conversation that two players had while preparing to talk with the media at USC. Now, USC contends that this is a violation of its policy prohibiting reporting on anything outside of media availabilities in the practice facility. I call BS on that because Luca doesn't work for USC, and if he witnesses something, if he sees something, positive or negative, he is well within his right as a media member to report on it. But USC uh, apparently taking issue with this story, and, uh, and uh, you know, apparently uh, this isn't the first time that they've been unhappy with Luca, but it, the beat reporter at Orange County was warned and now has been suspended. Now, the Orange County Register, the senior editor there, Todd Harmonson, who I know, uh, reached out to USC and uh, basically uh, asked for the suspension to be rescinded. Jen Cohen, the brand-new athletic director at USC, didn't have this on her bingo card, dealing with Lincoln Riley in the media in her first month on the job, replied to the letter on Monday evening and stood by Lincoln Riley, and stood by the two-week suspension. Now, I'm not surprised that Jen Cohen did that. She's fairly new on the job. She did not hire Lincoln Riley. She's brand-new AD. She's coming in. She kind of has to side with her football coach and her media relations department. Now, Katie Ryan is the director of football communications for USC. Katie is the person who is uh, basically uh, left holding the bag here. Uh, but I really do think this is Lincoln-Riley driven, and I think it's a bad look for Lincoln-Riley. There's a much easier way for Lincoln-Riley to enforce this policy, or should I just say work with the reporter, uh, as it pertains to this. There's a conversation that could be had and said, hey, look, we don't want to lock you out of the building. We would love it if uh, you didn't report on stuff that you saw. I get that you saw that. But... In the end, to me, this is more like, hey, I'm at a football game. I see something that happens. I see a conversation that happens on the sideline. Are you going to rescind my credential, Lincoln Riley? Like, give me a break. It's small-minded. Your eyes off the ball. I think it's a bad look for USC. That said, I am also looking at the Orange County Register. It's a fine newspaper. And I, I know Tart Harmonson well. He's a longtime Southern California editor in a variety of different papers, including the Orange County Register. He does a good job. 
I think he's in a tough spot here because these newspapers have now turned to hiring less experienced, less um, nuanced, less um, you know aware, uh, and cheaper labor when it comes to reporting on these teams. And so you're getting some some uh, you know disagreements that I think shouldn't even be an issue. Like I'm not even sure why this wasn't just a conversation between the reporter and the sports information director or the reporter and the head football coach because believe me I've had problems with coaches in my time and I've solved the vast majority of them by just having a conversation in which we go hey look I'm not I'm not here to go out of my way to take a cheap shot at you but here's why I wrote what I wrote and then the individual coming back and going hey I disagree with you and here's why I feel the way that I feel and that often that often kind of curbs the issue. Jake Dickard, who's coming on the show a little bit later, got upset with me last year in the offseason. Washington State head football coach, he was mad that I reported that his defensive coordinator was leaving Washington State, leaving Pullman, for the job at Arizona State, getting a significant pay raise, and getting to call his own defense. See, Jake Dickard didn't like it because he said, hey, I let these guys, I give these guys autonomy. You you wrote you know I I wasn't happy with you and you wrote that you know this this coach didn't have autonomy and that's part of why he left and and I get why Jake Dicker was upset at it because Jake Dicker thinks that's going to make it harder for me to go out and find his replacement because everybody's going to be going am I going to get to call my defense or am I going to have to call your defense um, you know as it turned out all all how it ended was Dicker texted me I called him i talked to him about it he said water under the bridge i said look i'm not here to try to make you look bad but this is actually what i think what i feel what i'm being told and you know that's why i i reported what i reported and he goes fine then we disagree and it's okay it's not personal nobody needs to pull someone's credential or ban them from the arena but i can tell you that sometimes these entities like usc like the trailblazers for crying out loud let's be real uh, sometimes these entities get a little bit entitled, and especially USC football winning the way it's won with the aspirations it has, they can certainly put the Orange County Register at a distinct disadvantage by yanking the credential and making it more difficult for them to cover games, therefore sending a message, do it our way or we'll yank your credential again. It's a really bad look. It's a bad precedent to set. should have been handled in a... Uh, conversation between the SID and the reporter or the football coach and the reporter. But in the end, I'm uh, left shaking my head going, man, is this like state-sponsored media, the beginning of state-sponsored media in Los Angeles? Like, can I can I really look at a straight face at anything that's reported about USC football by any of the beat reporters and not in the back of my mind be thinking they must be continuing to get access because they're playing by the rules? Um, and, and as I've told the coaches, I've told Jonathan Smith this, I've told Dan Lanning this, Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal, Mike Riley, Gary Anderson, there are going to be some days where you don't like me. Pick up the phone and yell at me. I'll yell back. We'll be fine in the end. I think that's how you have to do it. Stephen, what do you make of this? USC football pulling the credential and the access, suspending a reporter from being able to cover the team for two weeks. I don't like it. I, I don't like it at all. It does. It, 
I don't know how to describe. Like, it feels like um, USC is very self-conscious about himself, about themselves, right? Like, they can't take any type of criticism, and that's not how it works, especially in sports. And you know, may, you know, we talked about fans getting into fights. Like, sometimes we can't trust the teams that we root for. Like, I can't trust the Trailblazers, and I want to root for the Blazers. I want to believe that I can trust them. I can't trust them, and they've done a lot of things in the past that has made it that way. And so now maybe with USC, maybe there's fans that don't trust USC because they're not putting out the actual message of what, you know, of what people actually think. And they're trying to just push the narrative of making it all, you know, roses and it's all perfect there when it's not. And if you see, if you see mistakes, you got to report it. And that, and that's the one thing in the media, John, with me, like when I, when I took this job and when I got in, it was like, I'm just going to say the truth of what I feel and be authentic. And that's all I can provide. That's the only thing I can bring. That's the number one thing I can bring is authenticity, and that's all I want, and that's what I want out of my sports teams or out of any sports business. And that's why, you know, with a guy like Coach Prime and Dion, I like the fact that he's out there and he's saying things, what's on his mind, whether it's, you know, the right thing to say or not. I love it because he's saying the truth. I hate when, you know, teams and schools do this type of thing to the media and say, you know what, we're going to block you for two weeks because we don't like what you said. Like, it, does, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have some criticism of your of your franchise or your school it's just it's just a bad look on USC's part to do that like it just makes it seem like they're really they're really small and they just don't care it clouds um, all yeah. the rest of their coverage yeah it just it, makes it so you can't yeah. trust you can't trust them and you know i i i do think there's part of USC there's an arrogance that that comes along with being USC that i think even down deep USC would acknowledge but you know it's funny because on father's day 2 years ago I did this piece uh, at johnconzano.com. It was the fatherhood of the Pac-12 conference. And so I reached out to several coaches, athletic directors, you know, high-profile people in the Pac-12 conference, and I said, hey, tell me about your dad. Super fun, super gentle, like no conspiracy here. Like, you know, like everybody should have wanted to participate in this. And I got participation as the conference commissioners told me about his dad. And Kelly Graves, the Oregon basketball coach, said, here's what my dad is about. And Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, said, here's what my dad's about and what I learned from him. Bernard Muir at Stanford participated. And Jennifer Cohen at Washington participated. And, uh, it, you know, it was like Pat Chun at Washington State participated. The athletic directors at Colorado and Utah were all too happy to participate and call me, tell me about their dads. I reached out to Katie Ryan, who's in charge of football at USC, and I said, I'd love to talk to Lincoln, Lincoln Riley for five minutes about his dad. And they wanted like 14 questions answered before they could even consider it. When would this run? What are you going to ask? Do you have the questions? Where you know? And then they were like, uh, we're going to pass. You know, it's like it was... Too, what, folksy for USC? Too revealing? I don't know. Maybe Lincoln Riley just didn't want to talk about his dad. Maybe they didn't want him talking in front of what was then, you know, subsequently like 10 or 15 days later that they decided to leave the Pac-12 conference. I don't know. But it felt to me like their eye was off the ball a little bit. And I'll, I'll be honest, when Caleb Williams slid into Radio Row this last summer in Vegas, as you know, I'm doing the show from Vegas it's Pac-12 Media Day. Katie Ryan's with him. She's alongside. She's not heavy-handed. Like, I, other than a hello or a wave, I'm not really even talking to her. So I can't think that this is a directive 
that is coming from like a heavy-handed media person who wants control of the narrative. I just actually think that something got reported that Lincoln Riley wasn't happy about, and he's trying to send a code red to a media member here. Um, I'm trying to get Todd Harmonson, the uh, sports editor uh, at, at the Orange County Register, on the show. Um, you know, he. I'm going to give him the phone number, and let's see if he uh, let's see if he'll call in to talk about it. Because I would love to know kind of the back and forth of what happened. Um, you know, behind the scenes uh, with this whole thing. So, uh, you know, I'm giving him the phone number right now, guys. If uh, if he calls in, let's pop Todd Harmonson on. He's the Orange County Register's managing editor in charge of sports. So, uh, you know, love to have him pop on and talk about it. But, Stephen, you know, the Blazers took away my season credential in a move that was not unlike what the USC is doing. They just they took my season credential and they said, you can apply on a game-to-game basis. Basically, they just said, we're going to make this really hard for you. You have to give notice when you're going to show up. We're not going to make it easy for you on a whim to go, hey, I'm going to go to the Blazer game and cover something. And they were sending a message uh, to me just essentially about, you know, not uh, writing negatively about the Trailblazers. Yeah. And that came on Neil O'Shea's watch. And, it's, and yeah, don't, yeah. don't be critical of our team, but it also, to me, John, it screams like, if they're going to take your credential away from that, like, what will stop them from taking away the credential for anything? Like, they are just so trying to control every single message, and you can't do that. Like, people see right through that, and it's, there's got to be some type of trust that goes with it. So I got him. Todd Harmonson. Now we have uh, we have Todd Harmonson of the Orange County Register who is joining. Todd, thank you for popping on. Like, we've been talking about this and talking about why it's bad and small-minded, but give us an idea from, from your standpoint how this all unfolded. So I got a call from our sports editor on Friday letting me know that USC was doing this. And I said, what are you talking about? I read that story, and it seemed innocuous, if anything, really positive. Um, our reporter, Luca Evans, saw a, an exchange between two USC teammates, uh, one who was going to come talk to the media for the first time. And his teammate encouraged him and just said, just talk about the team. Um, and it was a nice, touching, human thing. Um, he used that in his story, and USC went ballistic, um, and they decided that they were going to suspend his access um, to the team for two weeks. And it just blew my mind. That's, you know, that was not anything that was reporting strategy. It wasn't reporting even an injury. It was a nice, touching, human moment. But apparently that's not allowed at USC. Are, are they trying to send a message to other media, or were there prior transgressions and this was, in their eyes, a final straw moment? They said this was about that story. Um, Lucas has been on the beat a short time, and now he, he came in strong, uh, really aggressive, and made sure to introduce himself to everybody. They hated that. Um, you know, he would say hello to people away from the field, not interview them, because that's not allowed. But he would say hello, introduce himself. Those types of things really bothered them, and they were on edge about Luca, um, because that wasn't technically the way they wanted the, the game played. And I, so it seems like this put, put them over the edge, but it, it was something 
just so harmless. You know, I, my first reaction, and we included this in the letter that we sent to um, USC President Carol Folt, Athletic Director Jen Cohen, and Riley, was you're kicking a guy out for two games for a false start. Yeah, it should have been a conversation. Like, you've been around this game long enough, Todd, and I, I've been in enough disagreements with teams and executives and media representatives that you have a conversation and you go, hey, here's what I saw. You know, I get it that this is your rule, but I've actually told some colleges, I've said, hey, I don't work for you. So, you know, you if you want to tell your athletes not to talk to me when they're on the field or when they're passing me on the street or not to reach out to me yeah. and message me, that's that's your prerogative, but it, it's not going to control what I do. This it just feels yeah. really heavy-handed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, my guess is they look at Yuka, uh, Luca, excuse me, who is, you know, he's young-looking. Um, it's kind of funny, you know, a buddy of mine saw him in the press box um, at the opener and asked if we asked jokingly if we'd hired a high school kid. He's got a, a kid face. And I'm sure Riley is just, he's trying to exert control over somebody he considers an easy target. That's that's how this feels. And, you know, yeah, like you, I've been around enough coaches who want to have some control, but they kind of get it a lot better than it seems Riley is right now. Todd Harmonson, Orange County Registered Senior Editor, one of the lead editors of the Southern California News Group. Is this a byproduct of newspapers hiring less experienced people at all in your mind, or is this just USC? You know, in this case, I think Luca is learning on the job a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's, you know, we're hearing from some others that they felt something was coming from USC Hmm. at some point soon, um, that you know, and there were the warnings that he wasn't friendly to the media in Oklahoma, um, that it was going to blow up at some point. This seems to be when it's happening, and, you know, I think his, he just was picking the newest target. And can you, you know, they're blowing up things you, that just aren't big. Can you guys still cover the team, meaning... Is it just him who he's a, he's suspended from covering, but you can send another reporter in his place? Sure. Yeah. As far as we know, yeah, they could. You know, after this blows up, they might try to suspend access to our entire organization. We'll see. Yeah, but that would be bad. Um, that would be so it bad. Would. Yeah, I mean, they've got a road game at Arizona State this week, so we're having to figure that out. But our plan is to still have Luca write about the team as much as he's able to do. Uh, we're figuring out what exactly that means because um, there's going to be some dynamics. But we have a, another reporter at practice today. Buy a um, ticket, we, put him put him in the front row, buy a ticket, have him write on everything he observes on the sideline. Like, you know, what, you know, you know it, it's ridiculous. It is. Yeah, I mean, we had this experience recently with uh, USA Gymnastics decided that they weren't going to credential one of our reporters who has exposed a lot of abuses within the organization. And this was for um, the huge event in San Jose recently where um, Simone Biles won yet another title. And Scott Reed bought a ticket, and he was right there reporting on exactly what was going on. Uh, You know, we'll do what we have to do to do our jobs.
Todd Harmonson, Orange County Register. Thank you for popping on and helping uh, lend some depth to the story. Anytime. Take care. All right, you take care. There he is. Uh, what would you do? You know, Stephen, what would you do? I put that reporter right in the front row, buy a ticket. Everything said on the sideline, report on it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, just you know, show them that you're not gonna be you're not gonna be uh, intimidated like this. You want to be covered? Yeah, let's cover. I mean, let's cover the story. You got to speak the truth, man. You got to get it out there and be uh, what you see. So whatever, you know, you got to put them right there. Jake Dickert, Washington State coach, coming up top of the hour. Since we're on the subject of civility on today's show, man, the whole show's been about that. People punching each other out at NFL stadiums. Then uh, heavy-handed media representation at USC. And a lot of people, uh, I think, won't understand the nuances of the story. There'll be people who go, well, he broke a rule, and he's not allowed back in. That'll be the USC fan reaction to the reporter getting suspended two weeks. Uh, I don't mind a team saying to a reporter, hey, man, uh, we would love for you to limit what you cover to what is said in the news conferences. But it comes back to the uh, a rule you learn in elementary school. You're not the boss of me rule. Like, the reporter for the Orange County Register doesn't work for USC. Works for the Orange County Register and is given access to news conferences and practices and games as a matter of public interest. There is There are tickets that are sold by USC because of the exposure provided by the Orange County Register, the Los Angeles Times, and various TV outlets locally in Southern California. There's a, uh, there's a dance that goes on there that, that has rules to it and has some uh, protocol to it. But I can tell you, I have had the University of Oregon tell me back in the day, hey, we don't like you being in contact with our athletes when we're not involved. Because I had several athletes who would reach out to me directly uh, behind the back of the university and want to have a conversation. And sometimes it's a conversation that the university's not going to like. And I always come back to like, hey, that's cool you can tell me that, and that's cool you can tell your athletes that, but guess what? You're not the boss of me. I don't work for you. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to follow that rule. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, there's a easier way that this could have been handled. USC, Lincoln Riley could have reached out to the reporter, Luca, and said, Hey, Luca, um, look, I get it. That was an innocuous story. You quoted these guys of what was said outside the news conference. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. But I, um, I get that you're doing your job, and we're just going to tell our athletes not to have conversations with an earshot of the media. That's, that's the conversation. Like, that, that's fair. But it, it brings me to, like, the loss of civility in general. The fact that the guy who tackled or cheap-shotted Henry uh, Blackburn, the guy, the safety for Colorado State, the fact that Henry Blackburn's getting death threats for the play that he made on Travis Hunter is disappointing and ridiculous, and also it dovetails with everything we've been talking about today. Coach Prime had to come out today at his news conference and basically say, hey, forgive the guy. Shouldn't be giving him death threats. Henry Blackburn is a good player who played a phenomenal game. He made a tremendous uh, hit on Travis on the sideline. You could call it dirty. You could call it he was just playing the game of football. But whatever it was, it does not constitute that he should be receiving death threats. That that's 
This is still a young man trying to make it in life. A guy that's trying to live his dream and hopefully graduate with honors or degree, uh, committed to excellence and go to the NFL. He does not deserve a death threat over a game. At the end of the day, this is a game. Someone must win. Someone must lose. Everybody continues their life the next day. Very unfortunate. I'm saddened if there's any of our fans that's on the other side of those threats. I would hope and pray not. But that kid was just playing the best of his ability, and he made a mistake. So I forgive him. See you. Um, our team forgive him. Um, Travis, is he's forgiven him. Let's move on. But that kid does not deserve that. I love that Coach Prime came out and said that. Love it. And Travis Hunter, the player who was running the pass pattern and got his liver lacerated, went on Twitch, and he's wearing a giraffe outfit, I think. I don't know. What was it a yeah, giraffe it was a uh, giraffe onesie. <laughs> I love it. He's wearing a giraffe onesie. He's on Twitch. He's playing video games, and he's talking. And he basically just says, hey, it's football. If the doctors weren't there, I would have kept playing. Nobody's blaming that kid, and yet there's there are grown-ups in Denver who have published the phone numbers of Henry Blackburn and his mother, the addresses of Henry Blackburn and his parents, and are giving the kid death threats over it. You talk about an hour spent talking about what's wrong with people. It's been this hour. Hour two, I promise, will be better. It's going to start with Jake Dicker, at least more uplifting. The Washington State coach, he's got a big game. On the Palouse. Remember, we had the debate yesterday. Is it in the Palouse or on the Palouse? I'm told by people who live on the Palouse that it's on the Palouse. Jake Dickert, head coach, Washington State, will be here right after the break to talk about his game against Oregon State. It'll be the Cougars and Beavers, the Pac-2 championship, coming up on Saturday, 4 o'clock on Fox. Keep an eye on it. First and ten snap, Ward pats it, slings it, leaping, ball, 50-50, Josh Kelly wins it, touchdown Washington State, it's the fourth touchdown of the ball game, it's 28-0 pending the PAT, early second quarter. It'll be Oregon State and Washington State on the Palouse, we uh, got to the bottom of that yesterday, it's not in the Palouse, it's on the Palouse, Saturday 4 o'clock on Fox, here to talk about it, Jake Dickert. Washington State football coach. Coach, uh, how important is it that people tune into this game? Well, I think it's big for a lot of different reasons, most importantly because it's the start of Pac-12 play. I mean, I think everyone knows that the conference is loaded this year, and just to get one win each week in this conference is going to be tough, and, and to open up with a, a matchup like this I think is great for our league, our conference, and then obviously you know, the bigger conversation about us and Oregon State and rebuilding the Pac-12, I just think it's an exciting week. The the showing, and I know this is looking back, and coaches are always looking forward, but the show that you guys put on two weeks ago against Wisconsin, second year in a row you beat them, you after the game, I thought you said it perfectly. You, you were emotional, and you were talking about belonging in major college football. Like, What did that moment feel like for you? Your voice was cracking. You probably uh, were hoarse from yelling. You, you just won a big game, the big celebration. Well, I think it's a little bit of everything you just said, uh, you know, it, it was raw. It was emotional. I'm very passionate about Washington State, its faculty, staff, alumni, former players, and then obviously our current team and staff. And I think it was the right moment, the right opportunity to express what I've always felt, and that's 
Washington State, Oregon State belong in the Power Five, competing their tails off at the highest level, and it's always been confusing why we've been annexed out. So um, we're going to continue to keep moving forward, but it was the right time, the right moment. Our kids played their tail off. They earned that victory and was just really proud of them. You, this week you get Oregon State, and you know I've seen them play three times, and I felt like their, their last game against San Diego State, maybe they were trying to do some extra things, or maybe it was just, hey, everybody kind of has one game that's a little flat. They looked a little flat to me, but you probably didn't see that. What do you see when you look at them on film? I think San Diego State poses some interesting challenges because of their defense, so I think you sometimes get a little hesitant to some of that stuff, but I see a physical uh, football team, a very disciplined football team. I think Coach Smith and his staff has done a really good job of just being ultra-consistent and stable, and I think now their players are in that mold. I think up front on both sides of the ball, uh, they're very tough to deal with, and, and I think that's where we're going to have to match their physicality, their discipline, and, uh, you know, whoever wins that that battle will have a definite edge. And, you know, the tailbacks are phenomenal. I think the receivers, obviously, in the screen game, they broke the door open, and now they have a quarterback that they feel really comfortable with that raises the level of everybody else around them. So it's a formidable opponent. Very thankful that it's going to be here at Giza Field, and we'll be ready to play our best. Yeah, they haven't won there in a decade. And give us an idea, for people who've never been there, why is that a tough place for opponents to come play? Well, I just think sometimes you fly in and you look around, there's not a whole lot there. And, you know, you can get a little bit sleepy, but then when you walk into the stadium, it's on top of you. It's electric. I think the whole state of eastern Washington, the eastern half of the state comes together on those game days. And, you know, it just it's electric. And it's one of those things where you can see the pride of Cougs everywhere on those certain days. And I think, uh, you know, Oregon State has a little bit of that when people come to their place as well. So it's a unique challenge. It's definitely something that's really positive to have on our side. Jake Dickert with us. Uh, your quarterback, Cam Ward, his offensive coordinator, Ben Arbuckle, they don't seem that far apart in age. It's uh, interesting to watch them work together. And the offenses look uh, improved this year. What do you see? I think that's the correct word. I, I think there's real synergy between offensive coordinator and quarterback. I think you'd need it. I think we've challenged Cam every step of the way since Coach Arbuckle has been here to be better in really every aspect of what he does, from preparation to performance to feet to delivering the ball to progressions, and I think he's answered the bell. He wants to keep getting better. He's really coachable, and I think we knew quietly that we surrounded him with, we felt, more athletic pieces. And I think you're seeing that. You know, we've got a bunch of receivers that can make plays with ball in their the hand, not just things that we, you know, designed for them. They're taking five-yard plays and making something happening, you know, with those deals. And I think anytime you get better on offense, you, we had to take a step forward on the offensive line, and that's exactly what I think we've done. And now getting a chance to see similar competition, you know, Oregon State dominated us up front last year. So uh, anxious to prove that we've gotten better, and that'll be a, a great test on Saturday. Oregon State's tackles, uh, you know, have played really well. And, uh, you know, they've got Jim Mahalchek, the run game coordinator there, who people who really respect in the business. But they have an identity. And as a coach, I'm always curious. A lot of coaches will talk about, hey, we need to establish an identity. It just felt to me like Oregon State's identity in game one was the same as it was last year. What do you, what do you see identity-wise from them? And in, in how much of that does start with that run game? Well, I think 
that just shows continuity. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the coach, like you're either growing or you're dying, you know, so they're pretty much 80, 20, 80% of the things you see they've done for a long time. And then there's these little wrinkles, these little formations, these new little shots that they take down the field and using their personnel in, you know, unique and different ways. And that's what good coaches do, you know. So I think they know who they are. They coach to who they are, you know, and they play to their strengths. I think they don't turn the ball over. They don't beat themselves. That's discipline. So every time you go against this this team, you got to make sure you're matching that. You know, if we can win the, the takeaway battle, that will be huge. Uh, and find ways to get a short field and make a big play. So uh, it's a unique challenge, but, you know, I feel like we know who we are, and we're continuing to get better in our roles of who we are as a team, you know, because I think the best teams, they want to keep getting better. This is an early season. We're done with the first quarter. There's a lot of football to be played, and we feel really battle-tested coming into this game, and I think that's a good place to be. I am always focused on, like, how can I be mentally healthier, physically healthier, and I wonder about coaches in the season. Do you work out? Are you a three time a week, five time a week workout guy? Or what do you do to kind of get your uh, physical and mental synergy together? Yeah, we practice at 7am. So I'm up, you know, five, five thirty, and I hit the treadmill five days a week and get some free weights in. And I think it's important. I really stressed it more this season than I did last season. And to your point, John, I think all coaches need that. You can't be your best putting plans together and making decisions and handling the pressure if you're not trying to take care of yourself. And that's one thing I try to stress to our staff. Uh, that's one thing I'm excited about this week. We get a bye week the following week, and you got to rest and recharge, and you got to be able to dial into your family. And those are things that I love about Washington State because, you know, I can go watch my kids play and perform in their sports too. It's just five minutes from the office. So there's a lot that goes into it, but we got to make sure we're taking care of ourselves because burnout is real. Yeah, I think we've talked about it before. What are your kids doing right now? What are they in season with, or what are they doing in school? So Riley is 12, and she's doing uh, volleyball. She's in seventh grade. And then I have two boys. So my nine-year-old just started uh, youth football. The junior Greyhounds are 2-0. and so <laughs> It's a big start to the season. And then my six-year-old's playing flag football. They're 3-0. and So uh, the Dickers right now, we're, we're celebrating and having fun. <laughs> You're sitting pretty. I, hey, I, w- I went through that volleyball thing. My oldest went through all the volleyball, club volleyball, high school volleyball. I got to tell you, I have a young one who's a soccer player now. I have three girls. Um, being in the gym is not that bad. You know, those volleyball tournaments are not that bad. They're, they're long days, but you've got your mobile device. You can do some extra things. You can And rooting for your kid and seeing your kid play is cool. Well, I, I was at a couple this February, and I would disagree with you, John. Those whistles <laughs> never stop ringing in my ears, if I'm being honest. Uh, you know, what I love about, though, is I go to those things, and I'm not coach. I'm dad. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction that some people can't turn turn off and on. And and trust me, my my wife gets after him way more than I do. I'm just there to relax. So it's uh it's fun to be able to you know do both and and find that balance. When were you guys at your best defensively in in the non conference games you've played? Well, I think it's been a little bit of highs and some lows. And I think what we found out about our our defense is when we relax. It, no one plays well in a relaxed state. You know, you got to have that urgency and that edge and that focus and that discipline. So I think when we play our best, that's that's where we've been at. Uh, the Wisconsin game, obviously, I think we played a really great three quarters. Uh, they got us a little bit on our heels in the third quarter, and that was a lot of field position stuff. But when we're taking the ball away and we're hawking the ball and we're playing with extreme effort, I think we can be really tough to deal with. And, you know, that's where our peak performance lies. And, you know, we know that about ourselves, and that's the best part. I think we got a bunch of mature competitors that want to keep getting better. 
I think it's hard to tell, you know, from from my vantage point, it's hard to tell who's really good or who's good. You see kind of those highs and lows that you talked about. You don't get an NFL preseason exhibition schedule, but now seemingly you get the conference schedule coming up. How, you know, how much of it is art and science in trying to get your guys healthy and playing as well as they possibly can when it counts the most? I mean, I got to think that that's a big part of coaching. Well, it's a unique challenge, and I think that's why you sit in these seats is you got to find the right balance. You know, we we're, we really uh, go after it hard Tuesday, Wednesday. We do a walkthrough day Thursday, and, you know, about eight fast periods of Fast Friday as we're building our speed back into being our best every Saturday. And that's a unique blend because you need to be sharp. You need to be physical. I, I really believe practice execution is game reality. And what you do out on that field during the week, you will see those habits. You know, instincts are the mastery of habits. So what are we doing every day to make sure we're building those habits so when the lights come on, you always go back to your default, and that's the level of accountability that you held yourself to during practice. So we stress it. We show it. Uh, I'm a big believer, in, and guys learn by seeing. So if a guy isn't doing it, you know, we show it to him, we correct it, and we keep moving forward. But peaking every Saturday – is a unique challenge. And what I want our guys to understand, John, is that adaptability is everything. You know, too many times young males, they want to be invincible. It's impossible, right? Be adaptable. Whatever your best is that day, give 100% of it. And that's a very important message I want our young men understanding. And let's go out there and be great together. One of the narratives that will be sold Saturday is glaring. I mean, it's the Pac-2 championship game. It's these two teams that are both ranked, uh, both on a big stage. Fox is broadcasting this game at 4 o'clock for people who want to tune in. But how do you recruit with the uncertainty in 2024 and 2025? Sometimes the uncertainty, John, is what makes it great. You know, uh, you, there, there's a challenge to it. Uh, there's excitement about what we're building and how we're doing it. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, everyone asks me that question, like, what happens? You know, I always just say, you know, what happens if our guys love being here? What happens if they love how we treat them and take care of them and challenge them and build them up? And, you know, what happens then? You know, so I always like to spin that question around. Of, I, I get the challenge. You know, I know there's a lot of questions about it, but I think we got the right staff that are out there on the recruiting trails finding the right people. We've never won the recruiting rankings, never. Uh, but we always find the right people at the right time for our place, and we develop the heck out of them. And that's how you're going to have success, and that will be our edge going forward. Yeah, and I think some people get caught up, too. They go, okay, is it a Power 5 conference? Isn't it a Power 5 conference? I don't think that kids in your program are, are, are hung up on the label of that. I think they're hung up on, you know, who are they going to get to play? What stage are they on? Can they get to the playoff if, if you guys have a you know, 10, 11, 12 win season? You know, am I reading that right? I think so. I think there's, you know, a lot of things go through a young person's mind because of, social media because of access because of how everyone talks about it you know versus letting everyone just kind of settle in and make great decisions for themselves you know i think the more data we get on the portal and once you're a starter i don't care what level you're at man you need to cherish that because that's hard to do uh playing is hard and you know to be able to do it at this level it doesn't it doesn't get easier so i think once you're comfortable you like a place you like a staff you're comfortable in the schemes and the schematics of what you're doing uh, stay there and just keep thriving because I think that's how kids become really successful. Jake Dicker, uh, good luck to you this weekend. Uh, Oregon State, uh, tough opponent, two really good teams, two ranked teams. Anything you want to say to people who may be flipping the TV around because your athletic director, Pat Chun, sort of talked about how important it was 
that you, you you drew a good number. He thinks that sends a message. Well, like I said, I don't want to get too deep into all those things. I think it's just really two good teams uh, that have worked their tail off are going to go out there and battle it out on this field. And this is going to be, you know, yes, we're in this together, but it, it's not going to be the friend zone. It's, it's two teams that want to get this win, want to start the conference season, more importantly, off. And, and once again, we're going to get an opportunity to show ourselves on a national stage. I think that's great. But there's so much quality football being played, and, and Washington State is going to show it once again. Jake Dickert, thank you. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for making time. Thank you, John. Go Cougs. And there he is, Jake Dickert, Washington State coach. I give my official picks on Thursday. And Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State coach, will join us tomorrow on Wednesday's show. Uh, Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, on Thursday. We've got uh, Pac-12 coach Palooza going on uh, on this radio program. I've also reached out to Rick George, the Colorado athletic director. I've asked for Coach Prime, although we may be do- busy doing 60 Minutes and uh, the Fox Big Noon Show and 14 ESPN shows. He's got an open invite here if he so chooses it. Uh, good stuff from Dickert. And, and look, if you're Washington State and Oregon State, you of course you want a good number. But if you're the coaches of, the, of these programs, you want big ratings. You want to send a message. You want two and a half, three million people watching this game even though you're going to have uh, a bunch of really good football games going on on Saturday. You want to send a message, and you want to dispel, further dispel the myth that, hey, these programs don't draw, these brands don't draw. As Pat Chun, the athletic director at Washington State, told me, and he pointed out, look, look at the Wisconsin game two weeks ago. Two and a half million people tuned in to watch that game, and it was head-to-head against Alabama-Texas. So you had a really big audience watching Washington State beating Wisconsin. And in week one, 3.3 million people tuned in to see Oregon State, San Jose State. They weren't there for San Jose State. Uh, you know, Oregon State can hold its head high uh, knowing that it drew a big number. It's not 9 million in Colorado, Colorado State, but co- few things are Colorado and Colorado State. That show will be a 12:30 kickoff on ABC as Oregon is playing Colorado. But I kind of wonder what's going to happen in the second half of that Oregon game if it is the blowout that, that Vegas thinks it's going to be. Will some people flip over from the ABC game to check out UCLA-Utah on Fox, which also kicks off at 1230? And if that happens, do they stick around to see Oregon State-Washington State at 4 o'clock on Fox? I don't know. Will you watch? That is a big question. So much more ahead. you got the BFT statewide. I'm glad you're here for it. Anna has popped into the studio. A lot to talk about. Before we move on, Anna, you know I want to get your thoughts on what's going on at USC, uh, Lincoln Riley, if you're just tuning in. Lincoln Riley, the USC coach, sending a message to a media member. Uh, Luke, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his last name, uh, was, uh, he's a, me- he's a uh, beat reporter for the Orange County Register. Luca Evans. Luca Evans, yeah, thank you. Um, and he uh, has been suspended two weeks, not by his employer, but by USC. They're suspending his credential for two weeks, not allowing him to cover games. Todd Harmonson, the uh, senior editor at the Orange County Register, popped on with us, said uh, they're still going to cover the games. They may send Luca to the game with a ticket to go cover it. Um, Bad look for USC. Any thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I have a thought. It's crap. It's total crap. You can't restrict media members from only reporting on what players and coaches say at media availabilities at a practice facility. So you're going to have media 
like restricted in that way just put on your blinders put on earmuffs as if you don't hear anything that is happening when you are on the premises or around the players and you're just going to have tunnel vision and you're only going to be reporting on what we spoon feed you during a press conference like this stuff is ridiculous and if they want a public relations firm which they already have they've that's fine it's not our job to you know preach their story and only their story the way that they want it told this is completely unreasonable and I, man i would fight this uh, i think they are and i think the interesting thing is you know the orange county register los angeles times other media entities uh they compete with each other and i found it interesting that Several of the Los Angeles Times reporters are calling USC out on this, yeah. saying, hey, man, this is wrong. Yeah, because in a case like this, journalists have to stand together. When it's wrong, it's simply wrong. It doesn't matter who you're working for. If you are a competitor, uh, you have to say something in, in a situation like this. Well, I think they will, and they are. And I think it ends badly for uh, USC in their own way. I'd be curious to see what the Orange County Register does. My idea, Anna, is to Todd Harmon said, I told him, put put this reporter in the front row, buy him a ticket, yeah. and have him report on everything he sees and hears. Exactly. While he's suspended. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let him find the story in a different way. Might, you end, know? might end up finding some good stuff. I find some good stuff walking around the stadiums. It's not on the reporter's job to try and filter out what is said uh, and to make sure that it's beneficial for the university. It's on the university to train its own players and staff yes. to understand that everything is on the record unless it's off the record. That's just the way it goes. That's that's the reality of the world, folks. And if you don't like it, then you, you, like, you can't shape the world in, in a way that is just 100% positive for you. Um, in terms of the media, whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter. You're spitting truth today. You are fired oh, it, up. The, it just it rankles me because it's essentially putting a gag order on people who are there to exercise their rights as media members, and it's completely unreasonable. I mean, it's kind of like the only comparison I have is when you're covering like a court case. Let's say you're covering a really serious criminal case, and the judge places a gag order on, uh, you know, on the case. You know, there are restrictions around that that have to do with preserving the sanctity of the case. And yes, if a judge is saying that as a media member, you follow the rules, and the judge has to do that according to the letter of the law. But this is this is not that. This is sports, folks. Get get with it. Come on. Jen Cohen's the new athletic director at Washington. She walks in the door well aware that Lincoln Riley, or excuse me, at USC. She walks in the door from Washington well aware that she, the most important person in her ecosystem is Lincoln Riley. Should she have pushed back against her football coach stronger in this case, or do you look at it and go, eh, she's in a tough spot there? She is in a tough spot, but ultimately it's her name you know, that is going out on this statement to the paper saying that we cannot um, let this reporter come to our media availability. You know, like, yeah, I, I, I get that she's in a tough spot. I don't, I don't know how she feels about it, really, but it is her name 
at the bottom of the statement. Moving on, Dan Lanning, Oregon coach, after Colorado announced it was leaving for the Big 12 conference, this was back in July, had some strong words and some strong reaction that um, people are trying to bring back up today. I want to play the original cut. Not a big reaction. I mean, I'm trying to remember when, what they won to affect this conference. I don't remember. Do you remember them winning anything? I don't remember them winning anything. He's telling the truth. They didn't win a damn thing. Now, he was asked if he regrets saying that at last night's media availability. And here's what Dan Lanning had to say. Uh, no, I don't regret anything that I've uh, said you know, for this program. At the end of the day, obviously, I wasn't talking about uh, Dion's team. I'm talking about the past and uh, the future for our team. But um, if that service is material for them, great, right? I don't think it's going to have any bearing on the game and the success of the game. I agree with him. He's also not talking about Coach Prime, is he? No. Like he's just saying Colorado stunk. Colorado did nothing for the Pac-12. They were they didn't win anything. Yeah. Them leaving, it's kind of like you know the the you know the comments from George Klyovkov on Pac-12 Media Day when you know he said we ha- we we feel like we have a chance to upgrade, and I think the upgrade was going to be San Diego State being better than Colorado. Now, granted, nine million people watched Colorado football last Saturday night. It was a huge audience. It, at ten thirty Eastern time, <laughs> there's eight million people watching the game. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Clearly, Colorado adds something now, but not the Colorado that went one and eleven and didn't matter. He handled that perfectly because it's obvious he wasn't talking about this team. Uh, we all know where Colorado has been at in the last few years and how they've performed, and this is just a classic case of. People trying to <laughs> drum up some controversy uh, when really there is none at this point. But, but you can, know, Col- like can Colorado still use it as motivation? That's the question. They could try, but it's a stretch, don't you think? Like, even if Coach Prime tries to use this as motivation, I mean, like, the most of the players on the team aren't even the team that uh, that, that that was talked about you know, that Dan Lanning was talking about. So that's that's a stretch, no? I think also part of it is, you know, the Colorado State thing last week was so emotionally draining for Colorado. Do you think they really can afford to have <laughs> a third straight week where they go, this is personal, after the rivalry with Nebraska was personal, right. after this, you know, the co- the comments by Jay Norvell were personal. Right. Like, do they really have another it's personal in them? Like, this is diehard three. You know, yeah. like it's never going to be as good as the original. Right. No, that's true. And, you know, I would love to know, like from a coaching perspective over the course of a season like that. Yeah, there probably is a limit to how much you can really press that button before. Like maybe the Colorado strategy in this is just to go in and play as hard as they can. You know, play the best game that they can. Tighten up the game. And, uh, you know, I don't know. What do you think if you were coaching? I've never coached. I just. Yeah, go ahead. Steven. I was gonna say this one is all about we're twenty-one point underdogs. No one believes in us. It's us mm. against the world. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I <laughs> I think that us against the world thing, you can do it a few times a season, and I think you can. It can be kind of your quiet mantra. Yeah, and you can look for ways that you're disrespected, but it can't. You can't have a month straight where you're like they don't believe in us. Mm-hmm. They're against us. They're disrespecting us. I feel like they kind of ran out of some steam. It, 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 and it felt to me, and maybe this is just me, 
it felt to me that by the time they got to that second overtime, there was a noticeable change in energy in the game. Mm-hmm. I thought both teams were emotionally drained by that yeah. second overtime. And Colorado played better. Mm-hmm. You know, Colorado just played better, had better players on the field. Shador Sanders was more poised and composed. Credit to them. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't see a big emotional lift for Colorado in this one. I think they're going to walk into Hudson Stadium. It's going to be a hostile environment. It's going to be a tough place to play if you were good and you were deep, and they're not deep as a team. I think they got some playmakers. I don't think they have depth, and I think they're going to get in trouble there. Well, you bring up a point about Autzen and the atmosphere that's going to be there. Dan Lanning already referenced that he's excited to see, you know, that it's going to be quite a crowd, and I really hope, I guess, on behalf of somebody who lives in Oregon, that people are respectful, I guess is the best way that I can put it, you know, like, Autzen, there have been games when it can get pretty rough, right? And so I just, I hope people, with the, with the well, world I, watching... I, I just, I hate that be... we have to say that. I know what you're saying. Don't turn into, like, the BYU game yeah. from last season where people were like, bleep the Mormons. Yeah. And it becomes the story and everybody goes, people in Oregon are horrible human beings. You don't want that. Because that was at Autzen, right? Yeah. If I recall? Yeah. Okay. So let's... Try not to do that. <laughs> we well, I I just think I hate that we have to say it, but I know why you're saying it. You know, and we start today's show by talking about fans who are fighting at NFL stadiums. Fan dies in the Patriots Dolphins game. Fifty three year old man is dead. Yeah. You, we we continue talking about like the death threats against the Colorado State player who hit Travis Hunter on the sideline, and Coach yeah. Prime coming out and going, "Hey, this is a game." Right. Why are, you know, this th- this kid doesn't deserve death threats. Yeah, credit to him. Um, then we start talking about, like, the um, you know, the, the sensitivity of USC football. Yeah. Uh, you don't dare criticize the Trojans or report on anything that you hear or see outside of a news conference. Um, <laughs> and then uh, now we're talking about, like, you know, hey, don't be offensive at Odson Stadium on Saturday. Well, and, like, I understand it's going to be a big game, and, you know, people will be riled up and emotions will be heightened. Um, But there's just a big part of me as just, you know, somebody who lives here, who I guess growing up in Portland, like, no one ever knew where we were or who we were, and now that people know Oregon, in part because of Oregon football, with all the eyes on Oregon, I just hope the fans... Uh, understand that they're representing more than just the ducks, I guess, in this. They they really are. Like, but their behavior will reflect either positively or negatively upon all of us. And, and I say that with the caveat that, you know, those idiots that did the BYU Mormon chant, the profane chant, that was just, a, that was a small group. It was a small sliver. By and large, people were fine. But that is the kind of thing that winds up blowing up and reflecting poorly on everybody. I uh, am left thinking about, obviously, Saturday's football game. I thought Dan Lanning did a couple of things that were really interesting in his news conference. I want you to hear sort of how he uh, how he speaks here as he's talking about the coaching staff and um, and uh, what he said. Now, again, let's let's be clear. Oregon's got a football game to win, and if you're Dan Lanning. You want to make this about your program. Says he doesn't regret what he said at Media Day. 
about Colorado uh, football, and he doesn't. That was football media day, but he also talked about Shador Sanders here. You know, I think he always keeps his eyes um, downfield and looking for opportunities to find open receivers, and that's something his wideouts have done a great job of. When you know he's he's had several scramble opportunities, but I would describe him as a guy that scrambles to throw, not necessarily scramble to run. But when he has to run with his feet, he can. Um, he's extended plays, and when you extend plays, it's hard to cover for a long time, right? So we have to do a good job of of not allowing him to extend plays, um, but also make sure that we plaster guys in the back end when he does. I mean, I think he's talking favorably about his opponent, building up his opponent, started talking about what a tough schedule Oregon has. It's exactly what you said that Who they said should that? do. Who yeah. said that uh, yesterday, that they, they should do that? You know, here, here's how he talked about the defense. You just heard him talking about Shador Sanders. Yeah, they're a Havoc team, right? They um, they find ways to make sure their players have good vision of the ball, right? Um, they have some instinctive players that play with, you know, a level of aggressiveness that you can see, um, and they do some challenging things that are going to create that. There you go. See? Talking favorably. Oh, I love it. I told you so moment. I know. For those know. who weren't here that might have missed it yesterday, I said that uh, Oregon should really – pay a lot of respect to what Coach Prime and his team have accomplished so far this season and talk favorably about them because it doesn't hurt Oregon. If for some crazy reason Oregon winds up losing to Colorado, then we go, well, you know, they did lose against a, a, a decent opponent. And, uh, and by talking favorably, if they win, all the better for Oregon to win against a decent opponent. I think... You're right. I also think he got some help in that Jay Norvell kind of assumed the let's poke the bear stance last week. <laughs> and he kind of got to see how that goes. Yeah. And I actually think Jay Norvell helped Oregon more than he helped Colorado State by making that comment. Because it took all the focus off week four. And suddenly nine million people tuned in to see what the heck was going to happen when everybody met behind the handball carts after school. Like, that's what Colorado <laughs> State and Colorado turned into. It's you know? Of, yes. and, and everybody went, oh, my gosh, is there going to be a fight? <laughs> oh, what's the handshake going to be like after the game? That's oh, like, you know. Silly. And there was. There was, like, Shooter Sanders yes. pokes somebody in the eye. Mm -hmm. Travis Hunter gets cheap-shotted. Nine personal fouls by Colorado State. Yeah. It got out of hand. Right. It got out of hand in a bad way, and it, it sort of presented, like, this mess mm -hmm. that Oregon was able to kind of tiptoe past and go, you know, we're going to just talk about what Oregon is. Well, it does give Oregon the opportunity to take the higher road right now. And I'm really not so much worried about Dan Lanning or anyone on his coaching staff saying anything that, you know, unnecessarily pokes the bear, as you say. But now they've probably already had or should be having the conversations with the players. Because the players are obviously amped for the game. And what you probably don't want is a player now inadvertently in one of the media availabilities leading into the game saying something that is seized upon, you know, as fuel for the fire. I think it's um, going to be a fun game. Oregon now a 21-point favorite. Steven, is that enough to make you think about Colorado? Uh, yeah, 21 is enough to make me think about it. I'm not ready to say... I like Colorado plus 21 points, but I'm definitely thinking about it, and it's more of just an adjustment. It's been crazy adjustments every single week with Colorado because they started out that point spread 
uh, against TCU, and then they were favored against Nebraska. Like, it's just gone back and forth. So I feel like, uh, yeah, 21, I'll start thinking about it. If it gets a little higher, maybe I'll pull the trigger on it. Oregon's going to score between 45 and 52 points. That's my range for the Ducks. I'm comfortable. I went 5-1 against the spread last week. I'm thinking about quitting the show and going to Vegas. <laughs> I am. I'm getting to that point, Anna. I'm at 68% against the spread this yeah. season. Okay. That's enough. Yeah. Just let me know. I, let like, me know. if I disappear, fam- family discussion. I'm on a Greyhound bus to <laughs> Vegas. Uh, look out. Uh, but, look, Stephen, between 45 and 52 points for Oregon. My question is, can Oregon's defense hold Colorado under like 24 to 28 that and that's where it gets dicey with the 21 points because I think Oregon's going to win this game I think it could be so it could be something like 42 28 it could be something like 52 to 20 and there's your 21 points like you know in that range so I think the question I have that I've got to figure out between now and Thursday is how many points am I going to give Colorado in this game? I think Oregon's going to win it going away. I think they win it going away as well, but I think, yeah, you're right. The question is, is can Oregon get pressure on Shador Sanders? Because we, you know, the Colorado offensive line isn't great, but what they do is they get the ball out quickly with Shador, and when he gets any type of time, that's when he can pick him apart because those receivers are really good. And it's kind of on to Oregon's defensive line how much pressure they can get on Shador in the backfield. If they can pressure him, then, yeah, this could be a 52-20 to 20 ball game. But if they give him any type of time, that Colorado offense is going to score. They're averaging over 41 points a game. Like, that is a legitimate offense no matter what you think about the team. So yeah. you got to get some type of pressure on Shador Sanders. If you don't, we saw what happened on that final drive. He just ate up Colorado State, and they go down the field. Because, John, I mean, they got some fast receivers, and then they got Dylan Edwards in the backfield who you know might be the fastest guy on the field when he's out there. So Not against Oregon. You don't think so? No. Not against Oregon. I mean, or look, he's fast. Landing said he might be. Landing said that's the guy they, recruit, they, he, they recruited. They wanted that guy, and they didn't get yeah. him. And he's that good. So I, I don't know, John. They got some team speed out there. I, they do, I, but I do worry about the pressure. They do, but I they're not getting 42 points on Oregon because if Oregon's scoring 50, that means Colorado's offense is not on the field. And I, and I keep coming back to this. Like, I do think Colorado can score 28 in this game if – if they play really well and Oregon doesn't. But the only kind of game I could foresee Colorado winning is like a like a 28-27 game if Oregon just tripped all over itself and turned the ball over three times. And I just don't think Bo Nix is going to do that. Yeah, that's so, a, yeah. Do you trust Will Stein enough to put together a game plan where – I do. Because Colorado's defense, like you said, not great, but they are opportunistic. Ten turnovers in the first three games, I mean, that's one of the best in the nation. That's how they're going to stay in the ball game. Can Will Stein yeah, put together a game yeah, plan? But it, it's against, you know, it's Colorado State. It's like saying Oregon, look at Oregon against Hawaii. Look at Oregon against Portland State. I mean, like we got kind of play two Power Five teams, Nebraska and TCU. We Nebraska didn't have a quarterback. Like Nebraska had a you at quarterback. There, that would have been a really close game. <laughs> well, that's true. But, that's just because that, that's me, though. That's you know. and TCU. Like I think that win's going to end up looking pretty good by the end of the year because TCU looked like a bowl team to me. Like you know, I'm watching them going. I think they can rebound and have a decent season. But I still just think that the shine is going to come off Colorado in the next two weeks. I think it's going to be Oregon. It's going to be USC. And I think a large swath of that peripheral audience that's tuning into the games is going to go away. And then the story becomes: Can they be bowl eligible? And is that enough success? I think it is, given what they've done to this point. But we shall see. Coming up, uh, more talk about college football in particular. 
the sleeper game on the Pac-12 schedule. What is it? I'll tell you next. Well, I wrote a column today about college football spanning the globe. You can read it at johnconzano.com. Where and how do you watch the college football games? I wrote about a guy in Singapore, Dennis Tan, who's probably just waking up. Dennis and uh, his friends in Singapore, they're, uh, they've created a club called the Quack Attack Group. They watch all the Oregon football and basketball games. They range in number from 6 to about 15 or 16, it appears from the photos, depending on how big the game is. Um, and Dennis reached out to tell me he's not all that happy with the 12.30 p.m. kickoff on ABC because uh, the Colorado-Oregon game will be happening at 3.30 a.m. in Singapore. So he says that, sadly, the club will have to watch from our laptops at home on a Sunday morning at 3.30 in the morning. So currently, that means in uh, Singapore, it's about, what, 7, 8.15 in the morning. So Dennis is probably well awake now. The interesting thing is the comment section on this column. It has people in New Zealand, people in uh, on the east coast of the United States. Uh, there is a couple in Kazakhstan who is... Oregon State fans who posted in the comment section saying that they uh, root for the Beavers from Kazakhstan. They're Kazakh born and Kazakh raised, and damn it, they root for the Beavers. And uh, people from all over the world, New Zealand, uh, Kazakhstan, and Singapore, and New York City. You know, it's funny because earlier you were talking about some of the worst things when it comes to sports, and this is one of the best things when it comes to sports. It's it's unifying ability that is truly now global. I mean, it's and it, I think it's that's a beautiful thing. The Oregon State Washington State game is going to fly under the radar because it's a four o'clock kick, and at twelve thirty we're going to get some bigger games. It, but I think it has a chance to steal some afternoon stage in that I think it's going to be a really good game. I still haven't figured out who I like in that game. Oregon State is a favorite. I will make my picks officially. On Thursday, I am 30-3 and three this year, picking the game straight up. My three misses, I had Colorado losing to TCU in Week 1. I got Coach Primed in Week 1. In Week 2, I picked an upset. I picked Cal to upset Auburn. They did not pull it off. I missed that game. And in Week 3, I did not see the Sacramento State win over Stanford. I thought it would be a close game, but I thought Stanford would win. Those are my three losses straight up this season. So I'm looking to keep that record intact. We'll see how I do. In the meantime, I think the game that's flying way under the radar is UCLA and Utah. They will be playing a game that kicks off at 1230. And for people interested in that game, you can check it out on Fox. It'll be opposite the Oregon-Colorado game. And I'm kind of just wondering if Oregon-Colorado gets out of hand if some people flip over to see how Utah will fare. Now, there's no word yet on whether Cam Rising will start or not. Kyle Whittingham said he will make that announcement on Thursday. Keep an eye on that. But I think UCLA is pretty good playing at Utah this weekend. It should be an interesting game. Utah at home, tough to beat. Anna, you're preoccupied with another story, though. (laughs) Go ahead. Let our listeners in on what it is that uh, has consumed your attention in the last five minutes. Well, hot off the presses... (laughs) Kim Kardashian has started up a new friendship. Tom Brady? No. Oh, no. Odell Beckham Jr. 
They're, quote, hanging out. Oh, boy. I don't know what hanging out means no, these days. That's Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. <laughs> They're hanging out, too. Um, so this is according to TMZ Sports, so consider the source here. She's not dating anyone seriously, supposedly, but she's open to finding love again. And, uh, you know, this makes sense now. So do you remember, you probably, this was not on your radar, but she showed up at a couple of Rams games uh, back in 2022. Oh, so th- this may be something that started up before. She, or she saw him at the Rams well, game. I don't know. She was, yeah, she took her son, Saint, to celebrate his birthday at one of the games. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it all kind of makes sense now. I, uh, yeah. I, I hope somebody slips him a message, <laughs> you know? Well. I hope maybe Chris Humphreys or Lamar Odom or, um. Well, well Lamar Odom didn't date her. He dated Yeah, but you sister. get in that circle. You get in the ecosystem there and it doesn't go well. Pete Caitlin, David- Caitlin Jenner, Pete, Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson seems like he's yeah. still. Yeah. Just as messed up as he always was. <laughs> I don't know about you know? that. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to talk with him. But she hasn't dated anyone since she and Pete Davidson split up in August of twenty twenty. Her heart has been broken. So. I thought I she. Uh, you know what happened here? What? Clearly, what? she saw the attention that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey were getting, mm. and she went, "All right, where's my NFL Rolodex?" And let me get a story out. Yeah, they, you know, this is exact. like, that. that's exactly what her publicist did. You think so? Yeah, like, all right, who do I have in the genre of the NFL? Oh. You know, if Taylor Swift had gone, like, for a comedian, mm-hmm. she would have run right back to Pete Davidson. <laughs> you know? I think, uh, I think this is orchestrated. Okay. So cynical. I don't believe. Don't you believe in love? Not when it comes to keeping up with the Kardashians. <laughs> I think that everything they do is a PR move that is carefully orchestrated. Yeah. I think when, you know, Kendall Jenner is seen with Bad Bunny, that's not <laughs> love. That's like, okay, how do we uh, rope in another part of the audience? Yeah. How do we increase our following? Huh. This is orchestrated. Okay. All right? 60 Minutes should be all over this. You know, 60 Minutes this week, by the way, had two guests. It had the uh, president... Of Ukraine, yeah, and Coach Prime, <laughs> and John Strong, the voice of American soccer, went because of course, like this is where we are in you know 2023 in the news cycle. President of Ukraine and Coach Prime. I was a little disappointed with the interview with, with who the with, Ukrainian president. Yeah, with no with Coach Prime. I Why? thought because I thought 60 Minutes should have put a sports reporter on it. Oh. There are how, questions. And I didn't love it. How soon before uh, Shador dates one of the Kardashians? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if Coach Prime would let that happen. He's a religious man, that's why. Yeah, I don't know if he would, because I think he's given those kids... Like, I think he's a really good dad. Like, just based on what I can see and how much... You can tell he cares about his kids and he cares about his players. Mm -hmm. So, like him or hate him, I don't think we can question the love he has for for people and his sons and his kids. Well, also, I mean, his sons can date who they want. No, I don't. I don't know if he. I don't. Maybe I have a good parent. But a good parent, Anna. We have three daughters. A good parent's going to interject a little bit. You're going to have a. You're going to shade the influences. Oh, you'll see, John. (laughs) Check back with me in ten years. Okay, I'll do that. (laughs) Five at five coming up.
Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, later this hour. Once you hear for it at 524. Make an appointment. Steven's going to give us the 5 at 5. Plus, uh, coming up, we will talk about the faucet. Do you know what the faucet is? If you don't, stay tuned. Steven, you got the five biggest stories? You all hydrated? You stretched out? I did, yeah. I did some jummy jacks right before we're ready to go. Good. Live it. For those of you who missed the Jake Dickert interview at 4 o'clock, you can grab a podcast wherever you get the podcast. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach on tomorrow's show. Dan Lanning, Oregon coach on Thursday's show. Big guests all week long. Hope you're here for it. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. The number one story in Stephen's eyes. All right, John. Colorado, how can we not? Talk about them as the number one story. That game against Colorado State on Saturday night drew 9.3 million viewers. Makes it the most watched late night college football game ever on ESPN. It was also ESPN's fifth most watched regular season game ever on that network for any time slot. The broadcast window for ESPN and the college football averages about 1.7 million viewers last year in that same time slot. It was also the most streamed regular season college football game of all time for ESPN. And in the first two weeks, Colorado, when they played in the big noon kickoff, they averaged about 8 million viewers for both of those games. So uh, put them late night and everybody is watching Coach Prime in Colorado. Didn't matter what time they're on, right? I mean, they drew an average of 8 million per game in weeks one and two. Can they you imagine drew, if they played a yeah. good team? Not Colorado State? <laughs> I think that actually there there was just there was enough theater there that drew in p extras. You know, it, would be, it just became a little extra, but it shows you the power of television and brand. And remember when George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, said that he thought that uh, Colorado hiring Coach Prime added value to the media deal. A lot of people laughed at him. I think this is evidence of that. That there's some added value to Colorado as a brand. I think the Big 12 Conference has to be very happy about what they're getting in Colorado. And keep in mind, this game started after 10 p.m. Eastern time and still drew 9 million people. I was I was forecasting a huge audience, and I kept saying 5 million. They blew that out of the water. What will they draw against Oregon? It depends how competitive that game is. But should be a nice audience uh, for ABC at 12.30 on Saturday. Story number two. Number two. So, John, this has a little bit of an Oregon Ducks flair, but uh, it's about Miami tight end Cam McCormick. As we all know, he used to be at Oregon. Now, today he told reporters he will petition the ACC for a ninth season of eligibility. He added that he's unsure if he would use that extra season of eligibility next year, but he wants to have the option available for him. He was already granted that year back when he was with the Pac-12, but since he's not in that conference anymore, he had to resubmit a petition. Of course, McCormick, he spent his first seven seasons at Oregon when he redshirted in 2016, played 13 games in 2017, was injured on the first game of 2018, missed all of 19 and 20, and then came back in 2021, and then last season played uh, 13 games for Miami. This year, he has emerged as a key player on that uh, as a tight end, as a blocking tight end. For the Miami Hurricanes, we're having a nice year. But, uh, I mean, nine nine seasons of eligibility, John, at some point we have to say enough is enough, right? We're going to get to a 10th-year senior at some point. He was in the same class as Rashawn Gary, who's on the Packers. He's in his fifth season in the NFL. Same with Justin <laughs> Herbert. He's on his second contract in the NFL. 
Cam McCormick's still in college trying to get one more year. I don't know, man. En- enough and enough, right? It is, except when you look at what he missed, and there was a pandemic in the middle of that. He gets injured in the first game of 2018, so he actually misses the 2018 season, eligible for a uh, red shirt. Then he misses all of 19 and all of 20 to try to rehab. So he missed three years in the middle of it. He's really like a lot of these sixth-year guys that we saw a year ago. But uh, unfortunately for him, I think it's a worst-case scenario. I just don't know, like, is he still in school? Is he he still going to (laughs) class? How many degrees does he have right now? How old is he? And and how many children? Seventh year senior, the, as at Oregon now an eighth year senior looking for a ninth year. I, he's I, he's a, such a good kid, such a good. I won't say kid. He's such a good guy. He's a, I mean, he's an adult now. Yeah, very popular player, but he's twenty five years old and he's in his ninth year of college. Doctor McCormick, <laughs> welcome. All right, number uh, three. So Phil Mickelson, he put out a statement saying that he has a gambling problem and will not be betting on football this season. Of course, we already knew he had a gambling problem, but it is a gambling problem indeed. As he said, quote, I won't be betting this year because I crossed the line of moderation and into addiction, which isn't fun at all. He also added that his financial losses due to his gambling weren't devastating, but the impact it had on his personal life was crushing. Mickelson said some people close to him throughout his addiction were enablers disguised as friends, but his wife, Amy, has always been the one person in his corner this admission does come after popular gambler Billy Walters. He alleged Mickelson placed more than $1 billion in bets over 30 years, including wanting to place a $400,000 wager on the Ryder Cup in 2012 when Mickelson was a member of Team USA. Now, Phil does deny that, uh, ever betting on that competition, but, uh, you know, seemed like a kind of a silly thing for Phil to come out and say he has a gambling problem. We all kind of knew he had a gambling problem, but he uh, apparently will not be playing fantasy football this year. And he needed everyone on Twitter to know. I, I think it's interesting that he's choosing to draw some attention to this. Uh, you know, studies say that there's about 3 million people out there right now suffering from a gambling addiction. And so maybe somebody sees what he's saying and decides, hey, I've had enough too. And that could be a good thing here. But I kind of have to wonder, aside from the Billy Walters accusation, Billy Walters says he built a, about a billion dollars on football, basketball, and baseball in the last 30 years. Wrote a book about it. Aside from that, is there some other reason Mickelson's coming forth? Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's the skeptic in me, but he took the Saudi money. He ended up, you know, making some enemies by doing that. I just kind of wonder if there were some others who were going to come out and say that Phil Mickelson has bet on golf D- before. Does it make you feel more empathetic for him that he took the Saudi money knowing that he had lost a bunch of money gambling. He, that's kind of why he took it, maybe, was because kinda he needed that money. Sad. It makes it sad. You know, and he, he was involved in an insider trading scandal in 2014, securities and wire fraud charges in 2017. I just kind of wonder if what we're really seeing is, like, you know, if, the, if he were a baseball player, I, I kind of think baseball would have said, hey, you tried to bet on your sport or you did, you're banned. I kind of wonder if he made enemies by taking the Saudi money and we're going to have uh, you know some fallout here and maybe he's trying to get in front of it. I don't know. If maybe you, maybe if, I'm just being skeptical. If you had to make a bet, do you think Phil Mickelson bet on golf <laughs> on a golf tournament he yes. was a part of? Yes. I if I had to make a bet, yes. Yes. I don't think the Ryder Cup in the $400,000 wager that he tried to place on it was the only time he tried to bet on golf. Is it any different though? That it's an individual sport and it's not a team sport if you're betting on yourself? 
it's not because it's the same logic in baseball. Pete Rose can say all he wants. Hey, I I only bet on my team to win. Well, that relationship that he has and the potential for him to get in such debt and such trouble with bookies and others creates a problem for him in that now people can lean on him, ask him to make decisions he wouldn't normally make even in games that he isn't wagering on. And, you know, Pete Rose, even though he was betting on his team to win, you know, does he go all in and manage a game like it's the World Series Game 7? Like, you know, just not doing what's in the best interest of his team? I kind of would wonder with Phil Mickelson if he got in such trouble, so upside down with somebody that, you know, if they said to him, hey, look, I'll clear your debt, but what I need you to do is I need you to to, to not win the Ryder Cup or not win your matchup in the Ryder Cup. I mean, it's just a it's a can of worms you do not want to open. Number four. Well, Damian Lillard's still a Portland Trailblazer, but there's been a little bit of news here as of late as Mark Spears has said that there is a mystery Eastern Conference team that is asking about Damian Lillard. Now, Dame has been doing a couple podcasts lately, and, John, he said something really interesting. I'm going to play this for you. He talked about where he would be playing if it was a perfect world, where would Damian Lillard be playing? Let me ask you this. <laughs> this upcoming season, do you want to stay in Portland? In a perfect world, I could spend my entire career in Portland. Dame says he would be in Portland in a perfect world. They also asked him on a different podcast about Scoot Henderson. And was that the breaking point of when he wanted to uh, request a trade? And Dame said no. Scoot wasn't the reason. Me and Scoot, we've had a you know a, a few conversations with him coming into the league. You know, I, that wasn't a deal breaker for me at all. I respect his game. I think in that position, he was the the best player available. So you know, that's what you that's what you got to do if you got the pick. Uh, but no, I wasn't I wasn't offended at all because at the end of the day. You got to come in and you got to play. And I've been doing this a long time. So it was, to me, that wasn't a, a knock on me or anything that would have Now, he's also been making some statements about he has a great chemistry with Bam Adebayo. Uh, he's also made references to Miami and other different quotes. He said him and the Blazers basically don't have the same values anymore. Kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth, but Dame's getting out there talking a little bit. Um, John, is Dame going to be on the Blazers at training camp, yes. or is he uh, going to be traded by that point? He's a Blazer on training camp, and, he, and and look, if he if he were adamantly against being in a Portland jersey and ready to dig all the way in, do you think for a second he would have given those interviews in a perfect world? He's setting up the narrative to be an empathetic figure, but he doesn't want to be the bad guy. So I think if this team doesn't trade him, if they want to wait till February. I, I think he's going to end up in a Blazers uniform. Do, do and, you think it's imperative that the Blazers do get him out of here, out of Portland, by the regular season and not go into the regular season with Dame on the roster? No, I don't think it's imperative. I think they have to get the best deal, and I think that's what's driving their motivation. I think I think they could probably get to February's trade deadline with him on the roster if it came to that. That's not what you want if you're the Blazers. You want the best deal possible you want a fresh start. You don't want this hanging over your head. You don't want him unhappy. But if it comes to that and you have to have him here, like th- the people who are involved in making this decision, look, I don't, I don't like him. I don't like Burt Cold. I don't like Jody Allen. I think, uh, I think they should sell the team and be gone. But I know who they are, 
and I don't think they're going to take pennies on the dollar for their best asset. It's just a tough situation, man. There, you know, I've heard that there's things about Joe Cronin and the Blazers that they are not initiating any type of contact with the Heat. They're making the Heat do all the legwork in this trade. That the Blazers are just sitting back. I, I'm kind of flipped a little bit. I thought it would be fine going into the season with Dame on the roster. I, I think he will be on the roster, but I don't want him to be. I want this to be over. I think it is imperative to get. Why? What, what's the downside? Because you're just drawing attention away from what you're actually doing. We've talked about having a direction for the Portland Trailblazers. If they trade Dame, we know the direction, and it's starting right now. It started at the start of the season with Scoot Henderson, with Shane Sharp. They're going younger. That's the direction. As long as Dame is on this team, John, I have no idea what they're doing, what they're thinking. I, maybe they want to keep Dame. I have no idea. Like it's just, it's a new era. It's a new page. They need to turn the page. Now, having said that, I don't want them to take pennies on the dollar. But I do think that I just don't want the distraction around Scoot Henderson, who's a 19-year-old kid, Shane Sharp, 19, 20-year-old kid. Like, I don't want that type of distraction knowing that Dame's on the team and they have to deal with these type of questions night in and night out. And then if Dame plays on the roster with them, he's just taking the ball away. He's taking away, you know, precious time of those guys on the court with that experience. I, I think it is imperative to get him out by training camp, by preseason, but I don't think that they will. I'm with you because I think they want to get the best deal possible. I, ca- I just keep I come back to what's the downside of him being on the roster? Yes, the, you know I think the biggest the biggest detriment is that they might win a few more games, and if I'm the Blazers, I'm really interested in being as bad as I possibly can be because I think there's another draft pick out there for them and a, another lottery pick. There's also the fact that what if he gets hurt, John? He's been hurt the last couple seasons. Yeah. If Dame gets hurt, I mean, what what? I feel like the value of Dame is already being overblown by Blazer fans. He even loses that value because there's teams that are afraid of that contract. If you he think gets... Blazer fans uh, overvalue him, I, I you got to talk to Burt Cold and Jody Allen. I bet you they think he's worth five or six first round picks. Because I mean, that... I I think that's why they're at an impasse. In four years, that contract it's just not going to look good. And if he gets hurt this year, John, I mean, it's going to hurt that value even more. So I, it's just don't even take that risk anymore. But I think there's a poker game being played clearly, and the Blazers are acting now like, hey, we're cool. We're just we're going to go into the season with this guy. So Miami's going to have to go out and find the deal and make the deal happen in a way that's palatable, or they're not going to get him. So let's see how badly the Miami Heat want him. Like, what is his value? The Miami Heat are about to tell us. Number five. HBO Max. Now it's just Max. They will be having a streaming add-on, which will carry Bleacher Report brand, which is now the Turner name, uh, and that will launch on October 5th at $10 a month. No charge will be assessed to existing Max subscribers until February 29th. But what it does, John, it will have live sports on Max. It will contain 65 regular season NBA games, NBA All-Star Weekend, NBA playoffs inside the NBA. So a lot of the TNT stuff will be live streamed on Max, as well as March Madness when that comes around. They'll have NHL games, Stanley Cup playoffs, MLB postseason, and regular season coverage as well for Major League Baseball. So... HBO Max getting into the live sports game, ten dollars a month added on. Seems like a pretty good deal, and you're gonna get a get some more live sports. Another streaming though, for all these uh, big time big time franchises. Look, we saw a game on Peacock over the weekend, Washington blasting Michigan State. It's not the game ever nine million people watched, but Washington fans were motivated to find it on Peacock. And I, you know, I I heard from Washington fans who said, "I'm going to sign up for Peacock, and I'll drop them at the at the end of the season." I just I can't help but think about Apple, Apple wanting to get into the business with the Pac-12, and how much enthusiasm and how many subscriptions Apple would sell 
if they had the rights to the Pac-12 games this season with Coach Prime, with Oregon, with Oregon State, with Washington, with Washington State, with Utah, with USC, with UCLA. It would have been a windfall in Apple's corner. They're all going to eventually end up streaming. And I'll be really interested to see what happens with the content that ESPN has earmarked like two years from now to be streaming. Will Apple own ESPN? Keep an eye on that because I think ultimately we're going to all slap our foreheads and go, Apple ended up with it anyway. Why didn't they just get it when the Pac-12 was trying to, you know, partner with and them? That, but that's the thing, though, is it's got to go on George Klafkov's feet because 100%. it's like you look at what Colorado's done. Like, there's so much momentum in the Pac-12. Think about that. Like, had they actually just made a deal with whoever all this momentum is, you know, going in favor of the Pac-12, and we'll, who knows where they would be in the landscape of college football going forward. And maybe then, if they were a part of Apple, everybody's going to want to stream because everyone's going to tune in to watch those Colorado games, man. It's just all the streaming stuff. We talked about it. It's going to be here sooner than we think. And the Pac-12 was the first to kind of say, you know what, we're going to be a part of it. And then they messed it up. And now it's the Pac-2. The Colorado-Colorado State game, had 5.3 million streams. Didn't end till 3 a.m. Eastern. Do the math for Apple TV. I mean, would have been a it would have been a windfall for the Pac-12 conference if that game was on Apple TV and and that that's the only way you could get it. And I I'm left though the the it's really interesting when it comes to Apple because Apple's a, obviously a tech company. Okay, it's different than the media networks that are coming out and going, hey, we had nine million people watch us. Hey, we had eight million people watch us. You know, I know the ratings for Oregon State and San Jose State in week one. It was 3.3 million. I know the ratings in week two. Washington State played Wisconsin. It was 2.5 million. Like, we know how many people watched. Anybody else notice that MLS and Apple have been very quiet? It's partly because Apple required MLS executives. Very few executives got to get to see the data. But they require those executives to sign NDAs. They don't want it out there. They don't want people to know how many subscriptions they're selling. They don't want to know. They don't want people to know that that you know hundreds of thousands of people in Europe have signed on to Apple to to buy subscriptions so they can see Lionel Messi. They don't want to. They don't want people to know those details because they're going to renegotiate with MLS and Major League Baseball and others and. They actually see it as a proprietary thing. Like, why would we share that information publicly? It's counterintuitive. Streaming is here. I mean, the Colorado game, you talk about all the viewers that were watching on TV. Uh, I was I was flipping around on my phone on YouTube, and there was a, there's a guy who live streams every Colorado game. He did it all the way back at Jackson State. There was 150,000 people on his page streaming at one time that game. So it's like streaming is streaming is coming, and it's going to be here. Well, yeah, it is here. And that's, and that's get, illegally streaming it. I just I keep going back, though, to Apple. Like, you know, look, the Apple offer for the Pac-12 was like at $33 million guaranteed, and then there was some upside, could get to 35 could get to $40 million if, you know, they had a bonanza of subscribers in 2024. You know, there was some real upside there. But I keep coming back to Tim Cook, and I'm going, how much is $50 million to Apple? How much to to give five million more per school? That's like what him getting changed between his sofa cushions. Like that wasn't a lot more money for Apple. And I'm just as badly as they wanted to be in the space, 
they allowed Fox and ESPN to box them out. And so I'm kind of left looking at Apple going, you know, did you really not want to be in that space? Or, you know, what was that about for Apple as they were negotiating with the Pac-12? Interesting stuff. Bruce Barnum's coming up, Portland State football coach. He is always exciting, and I'm going to set the over-under on profanity at two and a half words. Let's see if he hits the over. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Portland State got in the win column on Saturday. Bruce Barnum's here to talk about it. I had mixed feelings about the game. Same mixed feelings that I had when Oregon beat Portland State 81-7 to in Week 1. Portland State played North American on Saturday and won the game 91 to nothing. Bruce Barnum, I got to know if you had mixed feelings putting 91 up there. Uh, yes, uh, if you want a simple answer, if you want to dive into it. Uh, first off, thanks for having us. Um, John, I tried everything in America. I, I've never been in that situation in my life as a coach. I was not going to score 100 points on somebody. I just uh, I got respect for their people. They work. I'm not going to do that. But holy jumping catfish, man, it, it was hard. You know, I played everybody. I played 90 players. You know, uh, I saw what it was. You know, I uh, when I turned the film on, and you know, uh, the whole scheduling thing and how it happened. I'm not going to, you know, dive yeah. into that. Right. But I, th- I, I do think I have it. I know I have it fixed next year, but this year was a different story. So I didn't want to embarrass anybody. I pulled people. I had my threes in there. I was running things that that shouldn't have worked. You know, I'm running deuce, um, two by two open, single back to a seven eight man box. Uh, I, I asked coaches, should we run stretch zone, which you know it's an outside tight end aiming point, and tell the running back to run out of bounds. Uh, but that's not right for my kids. You know, so it was a quandary. Uh, another puzzle. You never know, you know. You never know when you get out of bed. Everybody out there understands it, what I'm saying. You never know what's going to hit you upside the head. It was. It, it like I'm not. I don't want to mean disrespect to North American, but I had somebody who was there say, John, their guys were like five eight, one sixty five. Was he exaggerating? They had they had some uh, uh, smaller student athletes. Yes, I'll leave it at that. Bruce they were lined up right, and whoever the hell's coaching them, he's a hell of a yeah. guy. He lives right down there in Sugarland by my family, right by yeah. the Astrodome. Is this still called the Astrodome? My, anyway, half my family lives right there. Let me we ask- talked about that, and, you know, a uh, hell of a guy. They're lined up. They play coverage, but, you know, geez. Uh, they can't stop. They, can't, no. They just can't. Uh, Bruce Which Barnum's is a positive. If they would have stopped me, I'd have said, Jesus, Lord. I mean, we're in trouble. But have but, you ever – did you – because I, I know after the Oregon game, you tipped your cat, you felt bad. You've been on both sides of it now. Which, it, it, is there any happiness on both sides? I guess if you win the game, you go, hey, I'm happy about it. But, you, you know, you probably remember what it was like in week one. 
Right, but next year everybody's going to look at my record. You know, just like they do now. Nobody looks at my record and says, oh, he, our record, and says, oh, you know, he plays two FBS games. They look at our win-loss column three years from now or next season. Right now they're going to look at this, and they say, oh, they're one and two. Look at that. You know, they went eight and three. What a heck of a year. They're not going to say, yeah. oh, North America was on there. I mean, that's reality down the road, but on college football Saturday, that day I tried to have my kids have fun. You know, um, I made sure everybody played on the side. I mean, I made it a point to get everybody in. And, um, but it's a win, you know. But, yeah, uh, you look at everybody else, you know, in the conference, they're playing people, and uh, they're winning 10-7 against some pretty damn good teams. So how it prepared us, I don't know. I'll tell you who we are after this week. Did you? Is it fair to say you got the most out of – the Wyoming game, or maybe is it the Oregon game? Or you tell me. In your three games, we, what did you? Which game did we you were, get the most out of? We were our closest matchup was Wyoming. If we don't turn the football over in that game, you know, uh, it's a game at the end. Do we win it? I don't know. Um, they had a tough group, but we had some things going against them. We were able to matriculate the ball at times, and, you know, and our defense played better and as the game went on. Um, yes, they were trying to, you know, four-minute offense and just get out of it at the end and not let us back on the field. But who knows what would happen if we don't turn the ball over and give them 14 points in that game. That was more kind of, okay, let's work on this. I made some movements up front with old linemen. You know, we looked at uh, boundary blitz, our fire zone pickups. We looked at our blitz package outside, inside, boundary, corner. What, what the hell are we going to do when we get to conference? And now all of a sudden we're there. So uh, that part, the three-game series, uh, preseason's over. And, you know, I kind of know where we're at and where we're going right now. That's kind of cool. You're going to get Cal Poly at home on Saturday, 1 o'clock kickoff. For people who want to check it out, go vikes.com to get tickets. Cal Poly, what do you what do you see on film for them? Well, you've seen some of them. Uh, their quarterback's a Ewart kid out of Washington. Mm-hmm. Remember him, the kid yeah. that transferred? He's their starting quarterback. He's southpaw, you know. You don't see too many southpaws in today's game, or boxing for that matter. But um, when he gets going, he's fun to watch. They've uh, kind of stalled out at the beginning last week, and each game he seems to be getting better and better. He's got a couple receivers to throw to. I like two guys on defense. They're actually leading the conference in sacks, and they played an FCS, FBS, and a two, Division two, but... You know, they got a couple guys up front. They don't have Oregon's guys, but they got a guy 14. I don't know. They told me his name today, but he's got a great first step. His first step. For D. Lyman, you know, when you recruit, I look at first step. Mm. When the ball snapped, how was their first step? Because that's half the battle. When you, you say know? first step, how is it? What's a great first step look like? That, that, that's easy. You freeze the film, and one guy, and he's the guy who's already penetrated the line of scrimmage. And nobody and everybody else, else Yeah, everybody else is still, you know, adjusting their s'mores on the campfire. You know, they had a graham cracker on that. It's melted. But um, he's he's across the line before the offensive line can move. And you can go around the corner. You can go around. You look for one-steppers. Oregon, you know, more last or last time I was down there, but that, some one-steppers. Deion Sanders. Um uh, was a one-stepper at his position, yeah. you know, 
Just when you break on the ball, half a step it's one faster. Step yeah, he's half a step than everybody step else. Yes. In Dominican Sue, the offense or the defensive tackle that played at Nebraska and in, in the NFL. First step. He played soccer as a kid, and I talked to him about that, and he said, "I think I have great feet because I played other sports." Do you do you buy that, or is he just a great athlete? Yeah, I mean, it's he's a hell of an athlete. Period. But. Um, I remember watching him because he went up. The guy, he stomped on the guy's head. Remember that? Yeah, remember that. That was a guy I coached. (laughs) Evan Dietrich Smith I had at Idaho State. I made him play everything on the offensive line. He's the one with Green Bay. But I was watching, you know, obviously he's from here. I saw him in Nike once. I think I'm actually taller than uh, Mr. Sue. But he's just a hell of a football player in that first step. I mean, it's athletic. and and he's got everything behind it too, you know. He's got yeah. power and leverage and hips, and so really good, multi-sport athletes. Yeah, really good first step, great stomp too. Uh, and Dominican <laughs> Sue. The, let me. All right. So you talk about the other guys, like number fourteen for Cal Poly. You get that scouting report, and coaches always like to do that. Watch number nine. Watch eighty-three. Who are the numbers on your roster that Cal Poly this week is spending some time going? Look out for who are they? Um, see, on my side, I'm better with names. I, you know, know your right. guys. Give me their names. Uh, zero. Their names. Yeah. Uh, McKenna, zero. Mike Linebacker, um, uh, he, he, he's fast. He's quick to the ball. He's impressionable, though. You know, he's going to go for that little okie doke and maybe throw over his head. 15 Sashray, last year they did, yeah. they spied him because I think he's faster than most of the people in our conference and, you know, possibly uh, people on their team. So last year they they gave a spy. I think they're going to see my running back. Um, I've got four that I really like, uh, I've talked to you about, but we've got one, Quincy, right now, who's uh, running really well and catching and doing everything. And, and you know, it's, I hear comments on him, so you add that to it also. Wow, you know, that's how back. He's pretty good, you know. Um, what else? Uh, my DBs are making, my back ends make up. I have a safety, uh, Hurst, number two. Uh, you run cover four. He knows how to run it. He's a young guy, you know. That's exciting. I got number. Yeah. Michael Hurst, so. yeah. Yep. yep, Michael. So you guys I could go guys. on. I like bragging about my guys. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, I just, I want our listeners, when they go out to the game, and I want them to know, you know, who your guys are. Uh, Paul Wolf is back at, in the league, and he's at Cal Poly. You know, it's a guy that was in the league before, and then he went off to Washington State, and and now he's back at Cal Poly. You got five new head coaches in the league. Does that throw things for a loop for you, or is that good for you that, hey, there's five coaches that are going to be focused on establishing culture, and they don't have continuity? Well, I, I, uh, I was... You weren't born when I was coaching. That's what a pup you are and how old I am, John. So I, I know Wolf. I've gone against Paul. You know, I know his history. I know I coached with uh, Dave Fackema my first year in college. He played with Wolfie at Washington State when they had a hell of an offensive line and a hell of a quarterback. And So I, I've been around him. I kind of know what he's thinking. He's He's an offensive guy. You know, he's an old line guy. Uh, so, and I remember what his Eastern team did, and I, and I watched him at Wazoo, you know, what he, or Washington State, what he, you know, tried to implement there. So, know a little bit about him. I, I don't know much about the, um, I think we were his first off, 
offer the Hawkins kid, Dan Hawkins kid. Yeah. You probably know Dan from yep. um, bouncing Atlanta. around college yeah. football. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, but they're all over. The, the guy at Sac State, I think he's one of the – he's a, he's a dude. He's, he's a hell of a defensive coordinator. Um, he is, he knows defense, he's tough, he wears his, you know, he doesn't care if his hat is smushed, you know, he doesn't care what he looks like, I like those guys. Uh, he's just, he's, he runs a tough squad, you know, I watched it, I watched uh, the end, I caught the second half or the last part of their game versus Stanford, you know, while I was watching my kid play on the, Laptop. I had football. I was in seventh heaven after our game, watching football. But you know, I, I know a lot of them, so I kind of know where they're from. I see who they hire, you know, and try to get the mo of their offense coordinator, defense coordinator, see where we go from there. Now, give me an idea with Cal Poly because they have co-defensive coordinators and Will Plemons and Cody Van Oppen. Who's calling the defense? Um, great question. I'm guessing it's Cody because Will's a front guy. I actually worked with Will at uh, Idaho, Idaho State. I used to we used to make up tests, you know, for your guys. Test yeah. test them on Friday. Make sure they know what they want. I'm a, I was always a guy like I don't want to test them because if they don't know it, you know, we're in trouble. But I'd meet him at the copier and I'd have like a one page test for the offensive line, and Will would have a 42 page you know, document for the defensive line. So he's a guy that crosses the T's and dots the I's, and this guy's going to know where to line up and that, and he's a motivator, you know. So I'm guessing, and I don't know, and some guys do it. I don't know how they do this, but some guys will call the front. You'll see them on the sideline. Mm-hmm. And other guy will call the back end. You know, I'm like, how the hell do you how coordinate do you do that? that? Yeah. You know, what if you call a three-man and he calls – you know, cover one, you're you're you got a mess. How many holes? I'm a mess. There you know, you almost one. Uh, Cody Von Oppen went to Western Oregon. Did you know that he was a quarterback yeah. at Western? No, Oregon. I know the name. I don't know him, but I know the name. It's interesting. You just find some offensive guys like Jake Dickert at Washington State. He's a defensive coach, but he was an offensive player. Like you know, and you are. More of an off, old offensive lineman, right? So it makes no, sense to God me. bless America. No, no, no. I played middle linebacker as a Mike ah, linebacker. Same thing. Same thing. No, no. I played defense. They moved me. Um, my first year in college, they moved me. They looked at us all. They hired a bunch of young guys, you know, and I'm the one that looked the oldest and acted probably the most mature because we had some, you know, screwballs on that staff. And, and they said, all right, he's coaching O-line. We, we need a guy that's, you know more mature and back's normal. So they moved me to offense. I'm like, huh? You know, and every day before practice, I would meet with Phil Early. Phil Early, he was our offensive coordinator. He'd tell me what I was going to do, how to do my drills, everything. But he taught me a lot between him and bouncing up. And at that time, I said, okay, this is your niche. This is a hell, this, this isn't really a job. And offensive line coaches that knew their stuff were tough. And there's a mm-hmm. group of us that came up there. Mahalchek, you know him. Yeah. He's with, with Smitty. Uh, but there was a group of us that came up um, at that time and just studied the hell out of the game, you know. Um, and here we are still coaching. It's, I but find no, it I wasn't. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't an old lineman. Okay? I find I that interesting. I weighed 218. 
Man, I find it interesting because I look at your resume, and aside from one stint, one season, maybe two seasons at Idaho State, you were you've been on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, they made me the D coordinator once there. We won six for beat Utah State. That was fun. But I was the one that got in trouble. I almost got fired because wow. our our booster kid, our biggest booster's kid, was our starting linebacker. Right, Barnum's there. I stayed up. Is like I was in the office by myself. We got to change. Something has to be done. So I came up with an Oki fire zone, easy deal that we could blitz and line up and you know call to you. I'm over two calls to me. I'm over three. Just a simple thing. Heavy fire zone or heavy oaky, lightning oaky. But I benched the booster's kid, right? <laughs> and I started this this snot-nosed, wise-ass freshman, and his name was Jared Allen. And he ended up playing in the NFL, et cetera. He's held defensive lineman force. But I put him in. I started in that game, and... Uh, nobody bagged me. What are you doing? You can't bench this kid. I'm like, look at this guy. You know, uh, why would we redshirt this kid? Anyway, we put him in. We play Montana State at home, and I put him. I put Jared Allen at him, coming off the edge like an outside linebacker on every on the running back. And I think he had he led the FCS in sacks for like 17 and a half. But that game. He did everything. He jumped over the running back, tackled the guy. I think he had five sacks, four sacks that game. But he picked up the running back once, threw him into the quarterback, and it was like, holy cow. Then I'm a genius, you know, and I still got a job. So it worked out. Yeah, and then was... they moved me back to offense. You know, you're done. Well, you survived it. I'm glad you survived it. Uh, give well, me an idea. Knock on get... wood. Knock yeah. on wood. <laughs> you got Cal Poly this week. Different kind of game plan, I'm sure. Than the Oregon game, the Wyoming game, the North American game. This is a different animal. It's a conference game. You are unequal uh, footing, so to speak. You're at home against Cal Poly. Um, how how much more enjoyable is it for you to game plan a game like this? Um, knowing the, you always wonder the that in the other games. You know, what if I had? What if I'm going in Oregon with who's equal to Oregon? Washington, uh, Oregon State. Washington. Yeah. What if I'm? You always wonder. Okay, what if I'm coming in here, you know, uh, on an equal plane? How would this work out? You know, yeah. you always wonder that. And now we are. Now our student athletes are on an equal plane, so the coaching side becomes the true chess match instead of, uh, you know, geez, we're down. Uh, well, let's pull everybody. It's it's different. Yeah. Or, hey, I'm not going to score 100 on this team. That's embarrassing for the game. Blah blah blah. blah. Now, boom. Here we go. Um, let's do everything in our power uh, to have our guys prepared to play this football game, knowing um, that if we play fast and we take care of the football, we should have a hell of a game. Bruce Barnum, good luck to you on Saturday. Give them hell. All right, thanks. Thanks for having us, Sean. I'll talk to you. You bet. Uh, Saturday, Cal Poly at Hillsborough Stadium. Portland State plays Cal Poly. Big Sky Conference game. Get tickets at GoVikes.com. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Fun show today. Jake Dickert, Washington State coach, was with us. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, was with us. Tomorrow, 
Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be on the show. Also, Dan Lanning, University of Oregon coach, will be uh, joining us uh, uh, as well on tomorrow's program. Uh, Stephen, we got a little bit more real estate on this show to talk about, and I've got some things I haven't got to before. But um, I'm kind of looking at uh, you know a couple of stories that are that are uh, circulating nationally. Among them, Shohei Otani's elbow surgery. We, kind of a weird story here. We all know he's hurt. And his doctor is now saying he'll be available as a hitter on opening day next season, and he'll return to the mound as a pitcher in 2025. He, he tore the ulnar collateral ligament in his right elbow August 23rd, continued as a batter through September 3rd till he strained his oblique. Now, um, the, his agent, though, issued a weird statement. Would not go into the specifics on the surgery. Just said the final decision and the type of procedure was made with heavy emphasis on the big picture. Shohei wanted to make sure the direction taken gave him every opportunity to hit and pitch for many years to come. What are they doing there by with that cryptic statement? Yeah, I, I think they're trying to get as much money as possible because I mean look there it was rumored to be 500 million dollars when he's a free agent after the World Series but that's when he is one of the best pitchers in the game and one of the best hitters in the game how much money does he lose if he's only a hitter and I think that's the fear is with the UCL injury how effective of a pitcher is he going to be after that injury and if he can even pitch anymore in his career is it just better for him just to be a hitter at this point in his career and so I think what they're saying is is like look you know what we're going to have this done. He'll be fine. He'll be back to Shohei Otani when he can pitch. We need to get that $500 million because you're getting one of the best hitters and one of the best pitchers because it is interesting. Like, I understand, like, how valuable it is to have him as both, but if he just focuses on one, if he just focuses on hitting, I mean, could he be even a better hitter, be the best hitter in all of baseball? I don't know, John. It's, it's a weird situation because he's so good and so talented. But he has an injury that is going to be hard to come back from, and he's going to have to put a lot of time into rehab, which will take away from other parts of his game. Does this ultimately affect his bottom line, or does somebody take the flyer on the idea that he might be worth $500 million and we'll just go with it and see if, he can, if this injury is okay? Well, I think definitely it may cost him a little bit, but not a lot, I think, at the end of the day. Like, Shohei is he's the face of Major League Baseball, and I think if you're the New York Yankees after missing the playoffs, they're going to pony up whatever they have to to get him on the team. Or you know, the Red Sox or what L.A. Dodgers, since he wants to stay in the West Coast, the Dodgers will do it. Maybe the Mariners will pony up some money. So I, I, I don't think that he's going to lose any money this way. I think they're just trying to play it safe and say, look, he will be a pitcher, so you need to pay him like, a, like the one of the kind that he is. Because if he is only a hitter, John, like still an elite hitter, one of the best players in all of baseball. But he's not a one-of-one. One. We've seen guys that can hit 40 home runs and can steal 30 bases. When he's a pitcher and he's striking out everybody and he has a 3.3 ERA and 45 home runs to go with it, we haven't seen that. That's one-of-one. One. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at the biggest contracts in MLB history. You you start with Aaron Judge, nine years, $360 million. Bryce Harper got $330 million. Uh, Mike Trout got four hundred and 26 million over 12 years. Mookie Betts got 365. We're talking about a number that starts with a five here for Shohei. And, you know, even if it's like a nine or a 10 year deal, Aaron Judge's deal is is paying him like almost 40 million a season. 
Mike Trout's deal is paying him just under that. I, I mean, I just think what we're really talking about is, is Shohei like a 45 or a $50 million a year guy? And if he's just hitting, no, he's not. He's probably a $40 million guy or a little, you know, in that neighborhood with Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout neighborhood. But the, you're right. The fact that he can pitch puts him over the top. I, I do think it's interesting that this is the second time he's had this injury. I think that does contribute to the decisions. But somebody's going to overpay for him. All of free agency, all of the draft, everything that we see in sports is all built on speculation. So there's going to be a team out there that goes, we'll take a flyer, knowing that the general manager who does it is, you know, if it pans out, he looks great. If it doesn't, he's get he's fired and he's gone, and he doesn't have to deal with the problem. And we see at this the end in of the rainbow. We see this in all sports, but especially baseball. Like we'll always say, well, no one's going to overpay again, and then someone overpays, and they win the press conference because hey, they can say we got the two-time MVP in the American League on our team now. We win the day. We won the press conference. Doesn't matter how much we paid. We got Shohei Otani on our team. So you're right. Someone's going to pony up the dollars for him. It's just. Is he worth it if he's going to be a pitcher or only a hitter, not a pitcher? I don't think so, but he's going to get that money. Not worth worse than the Max Scherzer deal, forty three million, and can't get rid of him. Um, but it's it's interesting that you see like Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Aaron Judge, at the top of the average salary per year deals, and and Scherzer and Verlander shorter deals. But you see hitters like Aaron Judge getting nine year deals, Mike Trout. Um, you know, a 12-year deal. Um, you get, you know, Corey Seager even with the with the Rangers, a 10-year deal. So I think it puts Shohei in an interesting category. You know, you'd want him shorter term, but he's a hitter who can still hit you 50 bombs a year. We're back tomorrow.